This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 29. Future Boy Conan. Now the Earth Awakens. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show. The anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Tim the Otaku Jock. Hello again, everyone. And this week, we are going to be talking about Future Boy Conan. But it won't just be the two of us, as we have a very special guest to talk about it with us. Agent Dice reporting for duty. No, it's Aaron Chapman here. Glad to be with you. It's great to have you, Aaron. Uh, this is my first time having a voice acting guest on the show, and I'm a little anxious about it, if I'm going to say, because I've never really had a situation like this, but it's going to be interesting talking about the show and its history with you, and I'm sure you've got a lot of stories to talk about Conan and working on the project. Yeah, it was a great experience, uh, so I'm happy to uh, be with you guys to talk about it. I was very proud to, to, to be on the English language dub that's, uh, that's come out now uh, with the new release of the show. Uh, before we begin, though, could you at least uh, give us a little bit of your background, like what you do? Sure. Um, I live here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I was a musician for many years, a touring musician in uh, various uh, rock and roll bands. I guess the most notable one was the Real Mackenzies, which is still touring out there. But uh, also some other bands, Bocephus King and the Town Pants, and still play here in town. In fact, I just played last night uh, at the Rickshaw Theatre, a sold-out Rickshaw Theatre show for an event called Keithmas, which is on Keith Richards' birthday, and it's a fundraiser for the Vancouver Food Bank that we did. And where a bunch of bands all do a Stone song or a Keith Richards song. So if I'm a little hoarse today, or a little gravelly, it, uh, it's because I've probably inherited a little, a little bit of Keith Richards' voice after uh, belting it out last night. I'm an author and historian as well here in Vancouver, and I started getting into voiceover work maybe, oh gosh, about 10 or 12 years ago. And uh, I've done a number of different shows and some commercials here and there and whatnot, and, uh, and narrations and, and this and that, but... Uh, um, and actually some of that work connects with some of the people that w would later be on, um, the, this release of Future Boy Conan in an odd way, um, which I can talk about a little bit later. So, uh, yeah, depending where people met, meet me from, it's either from music or from a book that I've written, uh, but now some voiceover stuff too I'm getting known for. So it's neat to, need to sort of have a few different things going on. I've always wanted to be somebody that uh, did a few different things at once. So, um, and this release of Future Boy Conan that, uh, that's just come out in this, this past year, I guess, um, has, has probably been, maybe been the most well-known thing, um, that I've been a part of. And, uh, it's been a real, it was an honor to take, to, to be a part of that and also talk about it to, to people who are interested in the show. Well, we're going to have a lot to talk about and... You know, you're a historian yeah. with your home city. Tim and I, we wouldn't call ourselves historians, but we're two people who are fascinated with the history of anime, shall we say, Tim. Definitely. It's one of those things that, as I think especially given, you know, when we came up as anime fans, like, we were kind of just right in that middle part. Like, knowing that there was stuff, stuff behind us, 
that just kind of caught our interest and that also helped because I think even as late as say like 2000, uh, you still had uh, some networks that were still showing some older stuff. I mean, most notably, I would say Adult Swim running the uh, Lupin the Third Part Two uh, uh, adaptation, and heck, they even were running Star Blazers on Sci-Fi. I think as late as like 2007, 2008, or something. So the history of this, uh, of just the art form and the industry itself, is always something that's fascinated myself. Indeed, and Future Boy Conan, I don't think we can really underestimate how significant it is both to the people who worked on it and the people it inspired. So, before we talk about Conan proper, a little backstory. So, it's 1978, and the anime industry was starting to blossom after a bit of a rough start to the decade, with plenty of studios like Tatsunoko and Toei churning out some big ratings hits, and several directors and animators starting to make a name for themselves. One of these men was Isao Takahata. Takahata got his start in the early 60s at Toei, working on projects like Hustle Punch, the magical girl show Akko-chan, before making his directorial debut with Holes, Prince of the Sun in 1968. Unfortunately, after the film tanked due to studio interference and budget cuts, Takahata and several other major animators left Toei and move over to Tokyo Movie Shinsha. It was here that Takahata would really start to make a name for himself, first taking over directorial duties on the 1971 Lupin III series and directing the two short films for Panda Go Panda, but his big breakthrough would come in 1974 when he directed the biggest anime hit of the year, Heidi Girl of the Alps. Heidi was a ratings behemoth, becoming a big smash hit in Japan and other parts of the world. Just to give you a comparison, Space Battleship Yamato, one of the most important and influential anime of all time, was being crushed by Heidi in the ratings. You have to understand, this was at a time when anime was made for a general audience. It's not like today where most of it is made for the otaku crowd. Most studios targeted either kids and families or children in the 12 to 19 demographic. It's remarkable to kind of think about that, especially knowing how the industry is these days. And especially hearing that Heidi was so much of a ratings juggernaut doesn't necessarily surprise me, but especially with it doing so much better than than uh, Yamato did, that like that is kind of uh, kind of a bit that I uh, wasn't aware of. Heidi would be a part of what would be known as the World Masterpiece Theater, which had been around for some time under the name of the Kalpis Children's Theater, but didn't gain the World Masterpiece moniker until the late 70s, and Takahata would direct two more of its entries, 3,000 Leagues in Search of Mother, and 1979's worldwide smash hit, Anne of Green Gables, as well as serving as an animator on a few more of its entries. However, working alongside Takahata was a young animator named Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki also broke into the business alongside Takahata in the 60s, where he worked as an animator, designer, background artist on many projects, before going to TMS and later Nippon Animation with Takahata, where he worked underneath him, but outside of directing a few episodes of the 1971 Lupin the Third series, he mostly stuck with being an animator. However, around 1977, 
Nippon Animation offered Miyazaki a chance to direct something on his own, an adaptation of a novel by Alexander Key, famous for the Witch Mountain book series, called The Incredible Tide. Now, Miyazaki was reluctant to take the job at first. One poll quote I found was, quote, I really thought directing wasn't for me, because a director has to assume such a heavy individual responsibility. Seeing what directing involved made me not try it up until then, end quote. Which, if you do any research about what it was like working for Isao Takahata, then you'll know that Takahata was kind of a perfectionist and really a dictator when it came to working on projects. He was notoriously difficult to work with. So, you can understand why Miyazaki was so intimidated to direct. You, you do tend to hear that kind of a reputation uh, for, for a lot of the directors of that era. Yeah. Eventually, though, he took on the project, and in 1978, Miyazaki made his directorial debut with Future Boy Conan, based on The Incredible Tide by Alexander Key, directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Now, that's kind of the history about it. I'll likely edit this monologue in post if I, uh, if I get anything wrong. But, so now that we've gotten the history out of the way, Aaron, what's the premise of Future Boy Conan? Oh, that's a good, that's a good uh, first question to ask. Well, the, the story of, of Future Boy Conan sort of uh, begins with this, uh, this uh, young boy living uh, on an island with his, uh, with his grandfather, I believe. And uh, there, this is post, this is 20 years after what was essentially the Third World War, which apparently happens in 2008. Uh, in the in the story store, which is which is neat, because uh, of course we all remember two thousand and eight and and you know, the, our lives are living now. But it's interesting. I always thought, and 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 then of course he the the this is a sort of in, in this post apocalyptic world. Although the, the the island they live on is is not that bad for its uh, for for where they're living, I suppose. And um, I don't want to give away too much of the plot or the best way to describe it, but. Um, Eventually, um, Conan, Future Boy Conan, the main character of the show, leaves that island and moves, moves, and and has a number of adventures from there. I mean, it, it's it, it was interesting to me when I was rewatching the show. I, I thought about the, its place and time in terms of terms of, you know, coming out in 1979. Maybe I, I don't know if viewers today would. Now I was eight years old in 1979, to be clear. So, but I remember growing up, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and the idea that there would be a nuclear war in 2008 was not necessarily so far removed from what the believability of the way things were headed in those years. You know, it was, there was, we, we'd often sometimes think of the Cold War as a 1960s thing, but, you know, as a kid, I, I remember, you know, especially when you got into the early 80s, there were some TV shows like Threads or The Day After that were these post-nuclear you know nuclear apocalypse dramas. That the, that the fear of a nuclear war was was very much a thing. So it's interesting, in terms of an anime, that it, it would it would set the stage and, and the opening of the show flashes to sort of what happened in that war and, and how it ruined the Earth. And there's sort of an environmental sort of story that goes through so much of the of Future Boy Conan that's interesting too. That was maybe ahead of its time. But I kind of when I was rewatching that, I wanted to comment on that with you guys. I, I'm a little older than you guys, so you may not necessarily remember. 
those years, uh, you know, pre-fall of Soviet Union years, where that was 1991, 92, whatever that was again. But um, but up until those late 80s, when the, it, it was, uh, that, that seemed like a way the world was headed, you know, and, and uh, we haven't had to live with that specter for so long, maybe until what's happened in Ukraine and some of the trouble there that's causing its own geopolitical disaster, but... He was interested to see how far ahead of his time, I guess is what I'm saying in terms of the, the, the setting of the show and whatnot. Now, I haven't really answered your question about what the plot of the show is. I don't know if I can do that uh, as well as maybe you it, guys can. You kind of summed it up like when you talked about Conan having adventures beyond the island. And yeah. the only real blank that you missed was that he meets a girl named Lana. Yes. And, you know, when he witnesses evil forces kidnapping Lana, he goes out to go and save her. And that's pretty yes. much what gets the ball rolling. Very much so. And uh, I was quite happy to voice one of those people who were who were one of the evil forces, or at least an evil force at first. Um, <laughs> I voiced the character of Captain Dice in the show, and um, and he was great fun to play. But I'll, I'll, I'll get more into that later with the, when you guys have some more thoughts on the show. All right. So you pretty much like gave what your impressions were on there, like how you what were your impressions watching it as an outsider for it. So I don't really think we need to ask you what your impressions are unless you have anything to add. I didn't know as much background on Miyazaki when I began, so it was it was a, it's been a really a fascinating um, entrance in that world, learning a little bit more about it. And I've already heard some some interesting background from you guys on it uh, so far. But it was um, my impressions of rewatching it reminded me how much it was ahead of its time in that regard. And I think that's one thing that people have embraced in a lot of the reviews that I've I've read about this new release of it. I don't know if I would call it ahead of its time, but you can definitely see shades of what would come from the people who worked on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, I would agree with that. I, I could get into that a little bit later as well when we you know, give more of our thoughts about it. Yeah. As for my impressions of it and where I first heard about it, I do a lot of searching of the database on Anime News Network. And naturally, I would go through Miyazaki. I only cared about what he did direction on. It's only until I matured as an anime fan when I started caring about what he did key animation for, storyboarding, layouts, design, etc. When I was going through it, I happened to cross a show called Conan Boy in the Future. I immediately saw the title and I'm like, ooh, Conan, is that like Conan the Barbarian or something? And... When I saw the artwork of this little boy standing with a girl in a dress, I said, hmm, this looks interesting. And I saw that it was highly rated on Anime News Network to the point where it was usually in like the top 50 highest rated anime on Anime News Network. This is, of course, before the streaming era, mind you. And so we were getting pretty much all of Hayao Miyazaki's movies that were uncut in America, complete with a uh, star-studded voice cast that was pretty good, most of the time anyway. (laughs) Um, But for some reason, we never got Conan. Until recently. But, you know, we were just waiting for the day it came out, so Tim and I, we waited, and we waited. Years would ultimately become over a decade, to the point where... Justin Savakis, uh, back when he was doing the Answer Man column, somebody asked him, why hasn't Future Boy Conan been licensed in America? And his answer was that it was likely because of copyright, 
but as people pointed out in the response on the message boards, Conan had aired everywhere else at that point. It aired in the major markets in Europe. France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Italy, etc. It aired in Southeast Asia, in South America. It had aired everywhere but in North America. So, flash forward to, to July of 2021. I wake up to the news that G-Kids Entertainment, who are becoming one of my favorite companies, are a subsidiary of Shout Factory came out that they had the rights to Future Boy Conan. And when I read the press release, I was ecstatic. Another historically significant anime that we had never gotten, finally coming to America for the first time, well, ever. And when we found out that it was being dubbed, I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't think that this would even be possible. As soon as the DVD came out, I went to my local Best Buy, picked it up, got it home, watched the first few episodes, and by the time it wrapped, I said that was one hell of a watch. And when I went to rewatch it, yeah, it still holds up over time. Tim, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, not much. I mean, other than just, yeah, when I finally got the chance to, to, to watch it is that I really enjoyed it. I really think that it's, you know, you can tell that it's from someone pretty early on in their career, but at the same time, it's, it's very well put together, very well polished, great characterization. And, you know, to your point about G kids, I definitely have to agree with you uh, with them being someone that is, becoming a favorite studio because you know they really that yeah g kids released this uh they also did the uh, the big evangelion sets not that long ago they also did the uh, recent blu-ray release of nadia secret of blue water uh, that i got they have really made it a bit of their mission to really kind of preserve a lot of those a lot of those uh, older shows that maybe a lot of that maybe folks uh, uh haven't been aware of and I talked about this with Aaron, but a lot of anime pre-1995 that wasn't airing on Toonami didn't get this kind of love until recently. Oh, you're 100% right. It really hasn't. So, with all of that said, let's start with the animation. Now, Aaron, when you went to go into the booth or into whatever you call the studio, we'll get to that, and you watched the footage of Conan, what was your impression of the animation? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I had, um, when I got cast for it, <clears throat> I hadn't looked at much online before that. I mean, the setup, when you're essentially when you're doing a, a, a dub like that, it, uh, it's a matter of when you're in the studio and you have the headphones on and you're watching the show in front of you, and you hear a countdown of three beeps, and on the fourth, which you don't hear, that's when you come in and do your line. And that's when I saw most of this footage for the first time. Well, I think I say, as I say, when I got the part, I looked up some pieces and some images of the show online because I, I was basically told this was just going to be a, this was quite a big deal in the beginning when, when, I, when I came um, into it. So, like I say, I didn't know necessarily all the, and I wasn't necessarily first told that it was a Miyazaki thing as well. I didn't, I didn't know that. 
so oftentimes when you go into something like this, you, you really have very few details. And unlike the way some animated shows are created, you're, um, you're just there by yourself and you're just doing your lines. Um, so it's a bit of a different process and whatnot. So my exposure to the show was, was very minimal when I, when I first came in. But when you saw the animation, what, did you, what were your impressions of it, like watching it in motion? Well, it was clear that uh, it reminded me, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned Star Blazers earlier. I remember that, you know, was when I was seeing that when I was a teenager. I immediately thought, well, this looks sort of, it looks like from another era. But, I, but the, view, the copy that we were watching was already, the, I think, the new 4K thing. So it didn't look like an old, scratchy uh, version. It looked like the, the new visuals. And, and, of course, when you're in the studio doing it, you, you're often hearing... You can hear the original Japanese cast doing the thing, and sometimes that's a nice reference point because you, even though it's been another language, you don't understand a word of Japanese. You can tell some by some inflections or tone how the original cast did it, original actors did it, and maybe along with the director's help, what, how you should approach those lines, you know, as you're doing it. I was I was quite enthused, uh, you know, about doing it, and it was neat that it was this this project that was uh, that was that old was was being brought to life again in this way. When I first watched the animation, my immediate thought was, wow, I can't believe just how clean this looks for Mm. 1978. And I feel this is true of a lot of the stuff that Nippon was putting out, because I described the general aesthetic of 70s anime, because I've watched some stuff by the likes of Tatsunoko. I've watched things like Voltus 5. I've seen clips of the original Mazinger Z. Uh, some of Dazaki's stuff like Ashtano Joe, Treasure Island, and The Rose of Versailles. And 70s anime tends to be very gritty. A lot of rough outlines, charcoal, shading, psychedelic color palette... Future Boy Conan, to me, does not look like an anime that came out in the 70s. It has that sort of proto-Ghibli style. Lively colors, very clean and smooth-looking character designs. I'd very much agree. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's credit, too, that they that the original, you know, cells and the and they, the, the images that they kept, because I think that, I don't know how far back they had to go to a print you know, or to, or to those negatives to, to re, you know, reproduce it all. They always went back to some original cells that were obviously maintained and, and kept very well. It was, they had to use like the original negatives and stuff to sort of like clean them up or yeah. something. And I just have to say that the restoration job on them is amazing. Like, it's not just the detail in the animation that floors me. They keep all the flaws that come with cell animation, because if you actually read the production history, Conan had production issues where certain episodes had to be delayed because of these so-called production issues. Like, you can see, like, the scuff marks on certain cells. There was one episode that takes place at night, uh, just outside the Barracuda. That's Captain Dice's ship. You can see all the dust from the studio on the cells. There's an argument over whether or not you know, you, we should be removing film grain when remastering something. I think Conan, to me, makes the case against, because you can see all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into every single frame of the show. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, when I was saying, it's like, and this is not to be a knock on the show, but, you know, watching certain sequences... I can definitely see where Miyazaki at least got the ideas in his head for 
certain sequences in, say, uh, Castle Cagliostro a, a little bit later on, or even, or more specifically, the um, Albatross Wings of Death episode of Part 2. <laughs> it, it, it really feels like that, you know, again, this show was very much a test kitchen uh, for Miyazaki. And, of course, I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying that, you know, he got it started here, and then he just was like, okay, let's uh, let's do this, and let's do it even bigger. <laughs> I don't even think it is a knock because you can look at what Miyazaki did with Future Boy Conan, with his design work, drawing certain characters, writing certain characters, and then draw a line to what would happen on his next projects. The next year he would do Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro, and then shortly after that he would go on to Top Craft and do Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind, and I think the one that you can draw the most parallels to as far as ideas that he took from Conan and placed into other projects, Laputa, Castle yes. in the Sky, the first Ghibli film. I agree 100% with that. Like I was wa I was watching it and I'm feeling like it almost feels like Conan and uh, Lana's uh, dynamic very much mirrors the two main characters uh, in Laputa, at least to some extent. I actually just watched Castle in the Sky, and you immediately go from Conan to Laputa, and you can say, wow, Miyazaki took so much and put it in that one movie. But of course, it's not just Miyazaki responsible for this animation. There are certain sequences and like certain drawings and locations that are absolutely breathtaking, which is largely thanks to a lot of Miyazaki's real-world influences, because Miyazaki was a huge nerd when it came to design work and drawing locations. He went with some of the crew of Nippon Animation on a trip to Europe to do location scouting for projects like Heidi and later Anne of Green Gables and other parts of the World Masterpiece Theater. He studied, like, aircraft from World War I and World War II, which... He would take his love for aviation into his 2013 film, The Wind Rises. It's it's remarkable how open Miyazaki's Western influences are. You don't normally get a whole lot of that, at least, at least for directors of a certain point. You don't get a whole lot of that, but it's also one of the major reasons why his work is so, I think, universally beloved. I think the only real creator who's, like, really embracing Western influences that's, like, doing stuff that's super popular nowadays is uh, Tatsuki Fujimoto of uh, Chainsaw Man fame. That probably lines up pretty well. There's others, of course. But it's not just Miyazaki responsible for all of this great animation and breathtaking design and location. People will watch this and say, oh, the character designs in this have that quote-unquote Ghibli style. But the man responsible for a good chunk of the character designs was Miyazaki's mentor, Yasuo Otsuka. He took Miyazaki and Takahata under his wing when they were working at Toei, and he went with them to various projects at TMS. He was responsible for the character designs on the first Lupin series from 1971, and a certain character's design carries over into one of the major characters but you can see them taking that influence and applying it to Conan. One other Ghibli co-founder on there would be Yoshifumi Kondo, a longtime animator for Ghibli and would go on to direct Whisper of the Heart. One other notable animator on the project was Masako Shinohara, 
one of the first major female animators in the industry, and worked on such notable Ghibli projects like Spirited Away, Porco Rosso, Pompoco, uh, My Neighbor Totoro, Kiki's Delivery Service, and one last notable member who worked as a key animator was another person who mentored Miyazaki, and you can read up on this guy because he's a podcast in and of himself, Yasuji Mori. Yasuji Mori was basically the first major superstar animator well before Osamu Tezuka changed everything with Astro Boy in 1963. Yasuji Mori was at the forefront of the animation revolution in Japan, working on projects like Magic Boy, Panda and the Magic Serpent, Sayuki, which would be dubbed in America as Alakazam the Great, and he would mentor Hayao Miyazaki on some of his projects like Hustle Punch and Rocky Chuck. If you've ever watched the anime Shirobako, there is a facsimile of Yasuji Mori as a major supporting character in the show, complete with a parody of the aforementioned Rocky Chuck. Supposedly, that was the show where Miyazaki really got a hold of being an animator. Interesting to know. But even going beyond the Ghibli people, some notable names on the staff. On the storyboarders, we have Noboro Ishiguro, who at this point was knee-deep in everything relating to Star Blazers, but he would go on to direct the Super Dimension Fortress Macross, Megazone 2-3, which we reviewed a while back, and set the OAV scene on fire, and my favorite OAV series of all time, Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Also on the storyboarding staff was Yoshiyuki Tomino. The no kidding. Yes, Yoshiyuki Kill'em-All Tomino, the creator of Mobile Suit Gundam. Tomino is, of course, responsible for Gundam and many other mecha anime, but people also forget that for a while, he was a storyboarder, and a good one at that. Always, fa always fascinating to learn where some of these guys cut their teeth. One of the writers on the show, Seiji Okuda, he would go on to direct the mecha series Don Kugar. He would do Future Police Arashimon at Tatsunoko, but he made a name for himself in the OAV scene, directing the likes of Dream Hunter Rem, Twinkle Heart, and, uh, Crystal Triangle. Ah, oh jeez. <laughs> if you're a fan of Studio Madhouse, longtime Madhouse animator Nobumasa Shinkawa cut his teeth on Conan. One of the writers for the show was Soji Yoshikawa, who wrote many significant mecha anime for Sunrise, including Armored Trooper Votums, Panzer World Galliant, Fang of the Sun Dogram, and uh, he directed the first Lupin movie, The Mystery of Mamo. The name, though, that jumps out of the screen for me? Anime News Network credits him as being animator on only one episode, but one of the key animators was Yoshiaki Kawajiri. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yes, the man who would go on to create such violent, action-packed anime like Ninja Scroll, Wicked City, Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust, and Cyber City Oedo, was a longtime key animator, and he got his start on things like Conan and later Unico. My goodness. <laughs> So I think that will do it for the animation. Um, do any of you want to talk about the soundtrack? The soundtrack, I think, I'm not going to sit here and say too much of it. I think that, I think 70 soundtracks have a, 
at least to myself a personal issue where it sounds a bit of sounds a bit the same throughout but i will at least say to it it gets the job done uh, where it needs to i enjoyed uh, conan it very much has that sort of tropical sound to it which sort of yeah. suits its environment and it's also largely thanks to its composer a man named akira ikebe conan is his only major anime credit in fact it's his only credit for anime Outside of it, he is a very famous Japanese composer. He conducted several symphonies, was a composer on several Japanese films, including a lot of work for Akira Kurosawa in the 80s and 90s. The soundtrack kind of reminds me a little bit of Macross. Not the more intense action scenes, but more like the laid-back sort of tracks played during downtime in between the fight scenes. Yeah. Let me just rephrase that. I didn't hate this or even I enjoyed really it. dislike this soundtrack at all. I actually think the soundtrack is actually is actually pretty good. There's just nothing that's like, hmm, I wonder if I would go back and listen to it individually. I mean, it's good stuff that you would have on in the background, and I don't mean that as a negative in the slightest. I kind of do miss anime soundtracks like this where you had a mix of you know, slap bass and electric guitar, plenty of woodwind instruments, and of course, the almighty mallet instrument family. Remember when anime soundtracks had xylophones, marimbas, and vibraphones on them? <laughs> I miss those days. Anyway, voice acting. And Aaron, I know you're anxious for this, but let me just quickly run down the Japanese cast. Yeah, go for it. Conan is played by Noriko Ohara, the longtime voice of Nobi Nobita in Doraemon. She's also Oyuki in Urusei Yatsura, Claudia in Macross, Hiyoshi in Voltus V, and she was a longtime voice in Tatsunoko's Time Bokan series, most famously the villainous Doronjo in Yatterman. Lana is voiced by Meiko Nobusawa, as far as I know, this is her only major anime role. She has a couple of others, but Lana seems to be the only one I could find on Anime News Network that was worth mentioning. Jimzy is voiced by Kazuyo Aoki. Relating to the world's masterpiece theater, she's the voice of Huckleberry Finn in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. She was Miss Ichinose in Meisani Koku. And you might have heard her recently as Yuriko Goda, that's the main character's mom, in My Love Story. Hmm. The villainous Lepka is voiced by Iemasa Kayumi, who kind of has a history of playing villains. He was the puppet master in Ghost in the Shell, father in Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood, Ernst von Babam in Razafon, but he was also a good guy. He was Cobra Nefretari in One Piece, Chief Chujo in Giant Robo, and Dr. Livesey. No, not that Dr. Livesey in Osamu Tezaki's adaptation of Treasure Island. Dr. Lau is voiced by Masato Yamanouchi. He's Dr. Azuma in Kishan, which I reviewed with Race a while back. Outside of that, his only other notable role was that he was the narrator and Donan Kashim in Fang of the Sun, Dugrim. 
Captain Dice is voiced by Ichiro Nagai. He seemed to be a favorite of Rimiko Takahashi because he's Cherry in Urusei Yatsura and Haposai in Ranma One Half. Okay, I get, I, I kind of get the characterization of Dice a little bit better now, no, knowing those characters. <laughs> Speaking of his characterization, he kind of had a history of playing doctors. He's Doctor Sato or Doctor Sane in the dub of Space Battleship Yamato. He's Dr. Kasumi Nome in Bow. Bow has a laser cannon! <laughs> Dr. Reichwein in Monster. And relating to Naoki Urasawa, he's Taihei Hiraga in Master Keaton. And I think his most famous role to modern fans would be Isaac Netero in Hunter Hunter. Lastly, Monsley is played by Ryoko Yoshida. She seemed to be a favorite of Go Nagai because she was Maria Freed in Grandizer, Miwa Uzuki in Steel Jig, Michiru Sautome in Getter Robo, which is not Go Nagai, but you know, still, Ken Ishikawa was an associate of Go Nagai, so it counts. She was also the titular Tickle in Majoko Tickle. And Natsuko in Cutie Honey. Uh, that's Honey's girlfriend for those who have never seen the show. Her, let me just uh, pull this up because my internet's out. Give me a second. You may have heard her as Journey in Galforce. She was the titular Megu in Magical Witch Meg. And going back to World Masterpiece Theater, she was Flora Jane Spencer in Anne of Green Gables. And... Clara Sesemon in Heidi, Girl of the Alps. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the moment you have been waiting for, the dub. So, going back earlier, we were happy that Conan was coming out, but we were also intrigued when we found out that it would be dubbed. And knowing that this was G-Kids, we assumed that they were going to use NYAV Post or Bang Zoom Entertainment based out of Los Angeles. When we found out it was dubbed by Ocean, I was intrigued to see how this would turn out. But now, this is where we come to the interview section. Aaron, how did you get involved with the project? Well, I had been, um, I had done a number of um, projects at Ocean previously. I probably started doing voiceover, some voiceover acting in, in 2012, but it probably, I had done a couple small things before that. I went to... I went to the University of British Columbia Film School, and um, interesting enough, Alex Zahara, who um, is another uh, one of the voice actors on Future Boy Conan, was there with me as well. Um, so years earlier, when I was I, I graduated a university in 1970, uh, 1995, I, I had known him for a while. When I was working on um, when I was working on films, a lot of people had asked me, "Look, hey, Aaron, you've got a great voice. Can you? There's a, I've got a scene in my film where." somebody turns on the television there's an announcer that says something or somebody turns a radio on could you do it and about i you know yeah, it took like five minutes to do you know like and uh you know that year at the at the student film festivals that was shown one by one as those films came by you kept hearing my voice on each different show that it, it sounded like everybody was watching the tel same television station or listening to the same radio station because it was always me and it became, it became a sort of a theme of that year and I, I kept I sort of me and some friends who knew it was me or, or people who realized that geez everybody's watching the same show in all these films or something 
so I had started, as I say, I started about uh, probably 2012, and I had done a few things uh, prior to that. I didn't want to bother listing my IMDb. You can look it up if you want. Um, but uh, I'd done a few things before that, and as I say, I didn't necessarily know Future Boy Conan as a Miyazaki project. My girlfriend at the time was a huge Miyazaki fan, and I remember she showed me Totoro. She came over, over the DVD and showed me a couple things uh, that she really loved. And so when I got cast in this thing and I found out that it was a Miyazaki thing, I t- we'd actually split up uh, between then. I think we sort of got back together. I don't know on the, but it was, um, I seem to remember, I was trying to remember, you know, when we were talking earlier, Nate, about how I sort of got involved with the part. I, I can't remember if I came in and did a reading or not, or, but I had done a lot of, um, I'd done a lot of things in that year or two. So the casting people at Ocean, Randy and everybody knew, knew me pretty well. And I, I seem to remember they just kind of gave me the part. I didn't have to d- really do a strong audition or come in and read lines. I think they they just thought Aaron's voice is going to fit this. This will be good. And and I had um, I'd done a couple of things, World Trigger and the Tobots show. And, and the, the, some of those parts were pretty, you know, sort of stern or robotic, you know, voices and whatnot. And, and speaking in that, you know, kind of that tone of things that it was, you know, Tobot X speaks like this all the time. And it was very, so it was kind of, one thing that I really liked about Dice is that, you know, he's this big sort of garrulous guy who's broad-chested fellow that has this big laugh and uh you know big voice and it was it was a lot of fun doing there's a number of times as i rewatched the show in this past week listening to myself do that captain dice laugh which is this sort of maniacal <laughs> sort of bray and dice is a character i thought was fun because you know it's essentially when you first meet him he seems like a bad guy and then there's this character sort of uh takes a journey from that and 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 switches and i don't want to you know i won't have any spoilers there but it was um it was fun to do. Now we we recorded the show d- during you know that sort of first year of the pandemic um, when so many things got shut down, and I know a lot of people were kind of stressed out or people who were immediately off work and uh, you know sort of riding the pine at home and um, wondering to do. I when I got the when I got the part, I I, I um, we basically recorded that. I was in about twice a week for what seemed like three or four months, maybe. Um, there was breaks in between that maybe stretched that out and we would probably record, um, probably two or three hours at a time. Um, and there's a lot of lines that Dice says where, you know, he's, he yells a lot. He's ordering Dongoros and the rest of the characters around, you know, that are on the, the Barracuda, the ship quite a bit. And he's, you know, uh, and, and, and so I would, I would go in and it was usually around, you know, one o'clock or, or, uh, from 11 o'clock till one or, or one o'clock till three. I remember and, and going to do those couple of hours worth of a sort of yelling or shouting at the top of my lungs in some case. And I'd leave. It was like, I'd spin to the spa because after two hours of sort of yelling, my head, you got rid of any stress that you had. And I remember around the time of, you know, as I say, around that time of the pandemic, there were a lot of people who were sort of stressed out. And, uh, that was great going in twice a week and kind of, uh, shouting my head off until I was hoarse and voicing some of those, some of Dice's lines. And I remember what rewatching the show, remembering exactly, you know, doing multiple takes of some things or, 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 you know, some of the fun we had with, uh, with some lines. I know I, I Carl Williams who directed, um, the, um, the dub, I remember sort of tickling him every time I did a line where my voice broke in, in the shouting of it, or you heard a little squeak, which I, I intentionally would put in, you know, and whatnot when he was shouting and there'd be a little, his voice would go a little dry or a little squeak, a little higher when he was screaming his lungs out and stuff. So it was a great, it was, it was a lot of fun to, to, to be a part of, as I say, in that regard. Where did you come up with the voice for Captain Dice? 
Well, I do remember. It's a good. That's a good question. It just actually triggered a memory in my mind that I had originally. I did originally come in and do a line, and I did dice with a slightly British sound. There was something about the sea captain rolling them that I thought might lend it. There was a couple of early pronunciations of Monsley that I did, where I I remember, and there's the, the first time you hear dice say Monsley. There's a I could hear a little residue of me still doing that British uh, version of of Captain Dice. But as so many times you come in and do or work on a, sh- on a show, very often is the case that they're, they're not looking necessarily for something so cartoony that it sounds surreal or what. They're just sort of looking for a flavor of your own voice and whatnot. And, and sometimes all you get when you're, for your listeners who don't know the sort of the process, what happens is when you get, you know, an audition on something, you're given a few lines from the show and you're given a picture of what the character looks like, so you can get some idea going in. And one of the weirdest things ha- I did when I when I did the Tobots show, I was given a, a line of a script, and, and there was a kid and a, a robot that was sort of next to him, was a, looked like a sort of a sidekick. And I misread the the casting note, and I thought, geez, why do they want me to play a kid? I don't, I, I'm not really that convincing. My voice is lower, you know, and, it, and it, it's sometimes hard to make myself sound really young because of that. I get some of the bad guy parts, I think, because of my my voice is lower that way. But so I read, I, I thought, I tried something at home. It didn't sound very good. I just sounded like a bad Keanu Reeves or something. It was terrible. So I, when I went into the audition that day, they had all the pictures of the characters all over the wall and the main characters of the show all had these little robot sidekick kind of guys with them and i realized oh god i've read this wrong they didn't want me to be the kid they wanted me to be the robot and they wanted me to be i was auditioning for tobot x in that show uh so i quickly kind of tried to stall and i say you know does he talk like a robot like this and no 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 he's more of like uh you know sort of uh, an influential um almost samurai-like figure in these characters, you know, lives and whatnot. So I thought, oh, okay, you know, and eventually we just sort of went into a fairly authoritative version of my own voice, you know, and whatnot for that character. Like Peter Cullen as Optimus Prime? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you're going for more of that that kind of flavor, you know, rather than, than necessarily the, the totally robotic-sounding uh, voice. But, um, and so, Carrie, in that show, there wasn't a lot of room to steer away from that. So with Dice... I quickly realized this guy's going to be great because he's he's quite insane, you know, like he, he, as a character, you know, and, and his motivations are really fun. As I was rewatching the show, I, I was reminded, especially the arc of his character, how it changes. That begins to uh, this tape shape, and I think episode five or six was called Dice's Rebellion. Uh, you start to see you know, this guy is this guy's going a different direction, but I don't know if he's necessarily that safe to be around, you know, like and. Uh, and there were some interesting things in the show that came up, of course, and you see in those first early episodes that I don't know if they ring differently to an audience today than they would have in 1979. The way that uh, you know they're passing, the way they're passing out you know, cigarettes to kids. Uh, <laughs> oh, my friend, my friends and I, when I showed them the first couple episodes of Conan, which they enjoyed, <laughs> we got a big chuckle out of uh, Jimsy and his love of uh, <clears throat> Smokies. They're called yeah. the dub. Yeah, it was. We we talked about that right when we were doing it because I said to Carl, you know, this is kind of crazy. They're you know like they're giving out these smokes to kids, you know, like and and I can't remember if the line had originally changed that that, that because I got the feeling that maybe and I would have to consult somebody who's a Japanese speaker to hear the original to see if that word was cigarettes, but they just thought they they should maybe change it to Smokies, that maybe it's a less, uh, it might, uh, you know, rankle people less because maybe people, I don't know, I don't, I don't think anybody thinks they're, they're having hot dogs, Smokies <laughs> hot dogs, but, you know, but it was, you know, and that, and, and you know, the, 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 um, 
it's sort of a torture scene with with Jimsy and Conan getting getting planked. Oh uh, God, that scene! You, you know, it, it was sort of surprising. You know, like and even l- later on, we talked about this when we were do. I remember being in the studio doing it. We were we were sort of laughing with some inappropriate humor, even at when when Lana sits down to basically a dinner date with Captain Dice, and and oh. he's <laughs> and, and I and. It, it, I felt is it, is it kind of weird. He sort of. I rewatched it now, and I thought, it's, okay, it's not as maybe it's not as obvious as I thought because he's trying to be, you know, he's trying to make himself presentable and whatnot. But and there, but there's a hint of like, what is he hitting on her? Is he taking her? You know, he's like, he's trying to like treat her as if she's royalty. That's what I took yeah away from yeah. That's yeah. what I when I watched it again, I thought, oh, I I, I don't I don't feel so bad about that now. But there's some interesting things in those first few episodes that uh, maybe don't uh, don't age as well as they may have in 1979, or they might have had a different re- you know a resonance to them in that way. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's fun to it's fun to think back about it. You know, you might goggle at some of what you saw in those early episodes, but given what some of the stuff that Tim and I have seen, we've seen way worse. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, sure. my thought, my thought with the whole Smokies thing is that you know, whatever the name is, it's obvious what they are, and it's obvious what they're doing with them. That's my thought on that. As long yeah. as you keep the spirit of the original, you are forgiven. I seem to remember too. There was, I think, maybe the first time you, first or second time you see Dice, he's sort of speaking to those villagers and offering them blankets and trinkets and i thought jesus this is very sort of colonialism being depicted in it's in it's he's a real but, huckster that yeah and, and trying to sell it and 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 the, and the usage of the word plastic not plastic but plastic it's plastid I, oh plastid pardon me yeah 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 it, it, i seem to remember that there was some change in the dialogue or we did it one way and then we did it another and we sort of went back to correct don't quote me on that for sure, but uh, I, I seem to remember there was the the pronunciation translation. I, it was never supposed to be plastic, but we changed it, it. Got changed at some point. I had to go back and just read that line again and whatnot. It was fun to do, and there's lots of moments where I remember I would often try and sometimes make Carl, the director, laugh in a, in a take if I did something. I don't know if there's a blooper reel that ever exists. It might have got deleted, but there was some there was some uh, episode we did where the, where. Carl said to ask me to read a completely inappropriate, rude line as a different version, <laughs> and then we would just watch that back for our own entertainment. And then it probably got deleted unless he had it on a he's got it on a uh, he on prob- a thumb drive somewhere. <laughs> he probably does. Uh, really, yeah, I'm, I, there's yeah, this, I would hope. There's, I would hope that he does. <laughs> yeah, voice acting was, outtakes don't normally make anime DVDs, mostly out of respect for Japan. There is one that I really do think you should watch, even if you've never seen the show. You have... Sidebar. You have to watch the Berserk outtakes. If only to hear Kevin Collins as Griffin. Or Griffith, excuse me. Oh, I gotta check it out. Yeah, we did a, we did a bunch of them, and, and and some of them were just live. I don't know if we, ever they ever necessarily got recorded. We just listened to it once, and it got deleted and whatnot. Because what gets eventually sent to the studio for mixing is obviously it's going to be one track. But it was sometimes it was just to break the you know break the uh, the mood after lunch or something. He'd come come in and do the call. We had something funny to, to do, and in turn I would try and make him make him laugh. It's, it was great, as I say, it was great. I have great memories of of working through it at that time. When, and of course you couldn't you sign like a non disclosure agreement. Um, in the beginning, so you can't really tell anybody what you're doing. That I, I waited for a while. When we finally wrapped, 
it was um, it was sort of, sort of a, a bit of a long wait to. I was kind of wondering when is this going to come out, and I kept sort of checking in with the studio, saying, uh, "Is this eventually happening?" And then when the announcements were made, I guess it was about midway last year, June and July. You mentioned Nate, uh, you hearing about it in July. Of, um, it, it was pretty cool when the word finally came out because I could sort of then talk about it and. Um, Outside of mentioning it to, um, as I say, my girlfriend at the time, that uh, uh, and 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 it was funny to show her, you know, the DVD when I got it and uh, and see the finished product. It was, um, it, yeah, it was great. It was a really neat thing to be a part of, and I'm very very honored. To, and even in, in my small slice of just playing voicing Dice's character in the dub. One thing as well, I was just I was realizing too that I thought I mentioned to you guys. I don't just do Dice. There's a couple of very small. And any times when you're in the studio, sometimes there's a at the end of the day there's a walk on character and just happens to be a line one line by you know one of uh, Lemkin's aides or uh, one of the guys uh, on the on the commission at Industria there was one scene in um, I think it's actually in the, the episode I mentioned earlier every uh, moment in life is a gun where you go to a triangle tower and you see Lemka talking to some of the guys on the commission who are at their computers moving up and down these seats um, and I as soon as I watch that again there's a line where one of the there are a bunch of old guys that are managing things on the on the as they sit at these computers that are moving up and down and things like this and uh, somebody asks how much power they have would have left to and they're, they're trying to divert some energy to somewhere else and one of the guys says we've got about three months left of power if we don't get more you know some of the more placid from from the Barracuda. I recently remembered that was me who said it. I've, I've changed my voice a little bit. It's not Dice's voice. It's a, I, I tried to make myself sound like an old man, you know, like, because all those guys are these bearded older uh, guys. But there's a few other lines like that, and I'd have to look at my, my, my casting sheets at the day, to, to, which I kept. I've got them in a binder here, uh, just up on this wall here, yeah, where uh, I, uh, I have those notes, and there's a bunch of other my character lines. You just, it's a one line, you, you barely do one or two takes of it, you know, but seeing those are like finding little coins in the cake for uh to when to discover those again when rewatching the show i believe that is called a bit roll in showbiz yes and I, i'm pretty sure that you did walla right yeah we would do that and uh and had done that before on other shows and sometimes i've just done that uh, on, on a show and uh, yeah it's uh, it's always uh, it's always fun to sort of jump in one of those little small parts and and then that character goes on his way and and you don't see him again or you don't hear him again. I would imagine that, you know, little bit uh, roles like that, you have a little more uh, freedom to kind of experiment with uh, with uh, whatever kind of voice you want to give to him. Very, mu- very much so, yeah. Um, and, and you can do something sometimes completely outlandish uh, to see if it works as well because it's just guys just squeaking by and maybe says something where he's shrieking something or he's reacting to something or he, he gets shot or something. And, and uh, I remember on uh, I remember on Tobots it did a scene where, these characters are chasing somebody down a, a city highway and a car gets smacked from behind and they, they asked me to do the voice of that driver and I, I just did a very loud what just happened you know like and we kept laughing watching that back of this guy reacting it's sort of day being ruined because his car got cracked but I, it was uh, yeah things like that are always uh, are always fun to do you pretty much like answered all my questions like i have typed here you know did you originally audition captain dice how'd you get involved um how did you approach the character although i think we can save that for when we get to dice himself i've sort of been out of the loop on ocean i know that a lot of the actors for ocean worked on my little pony which yeah. i find hilarious yeah. when i look at the cast of another show that they did called black lagoon i made a post about that on twitter not that long ago i did too <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, there's a bunch of uh, there's a bunch of people in town. Uh, the the I've never done any of that My Little Pony stuff myself, but uh, but I think there was a documentary made about Ashley, who has done a bunch of My Little Pony 
But it's fun. Ocean uh, is not far from my uh, my my home, and the, and the studio itself is quite near a place in Vancouver called Granville Island, which is a little sort of fresh food market and little restaurants there and whatnot. So I would always go down uh, after I'd do my you know yelling for a couple hours. I'd always go down to Granville Island and treat myself to some fish and chips uh, after show. And I'd probably put on some weight <coughs> for the, being in, in about 22 out of 25 episodes of that show uh, and constantly going down there for a big meal afterwards. <laughs> but it was uh, it was always fun to uh, do it. So I have great memories of, of working on that show. And, and yeah, of course, you, you're, you're really just on your own when you're doing it. You're not totally aware of some of the other people that were on the show. I only found out that Alex Zahara was on it when I saw some a script for him. And I thought, oh, geez, you know, I never got a chance to say hi to him. I haven't seen him in years, but we were, you know, there was uh, lots of scenes we played. And the actor who plays Dr. Lau, I was mentioning this to you, Nate, Hiro Kanagawa, I believe his name is? Yeah, that is correct. Blanked out there for a second, but I've seen Hiro in so much stuff. He was in the ter- second season of The Terror, um, which is a great series, uh, and I've and he's done a number of different films uh, of him acting in town for years, and I, I think he's written some plays. And I happened to be at an Asian film festival uh, in town where he was at, and I recognized him, and I had to go up and introduce myself, and I, I said, hey, hi, you don't know me, but I played Captain Dice and you were Dr. Lau, and we had a laugh, and it was great to meet him, and I, I've always had been impressed with him as an actor, so um, when I found out, as I say, some of the people who were on the show, which you sometimes only know about once it's all done, it was pretty cool to say that I had done some scenes with them in that regard, even though, of course, with dubbing, you're just doing it on your own, but that's the key to good directing, I, I think, and that's where we benefited so much from Carl, who was a great director I've worked with a number of times. He, he, he's very good about putting you, sort of reminding you or telling you right in the moment, okay, this is what's happened before, and this is what leading up to. So you're sort of in this mood. It kind of helps you give you an idea on how to how you're going to maybe read the line, you know, or, or it doesn't necessarily ever say, read it like this, unless you're totally off going into, you know, they said, As, I think Aaron, you try and read one of that. But very often the case, just gives you a suggestion or puts you in that, reminds you where you are in the story or what you're just coming from. So why you would be happy or why you'd be angry or why you'd be reticent, you know, and, and, the, and the emotions going in. So it's a, you would think, you would think, um, you know, cartoon and anime directing would be an easy thing because the, it's already been done. You can refer to, you know, the original audio and you can kind of hear how, uh, how it's been, but it's it's quite a skill unto itself, and and it's a, I'm always impressed. And sometimes in the downtime of the show, I would sometimes ask directors questions about how they approach some things, and it's a whole other school of work, and 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 school of the industry that uh, I don't know if it gets the appreciation that it gets. But but as I say, to ask you guys what you thought of the whole dub itself, I know I've read some people who love the, the dub of the show, but I know some people who are maybe purists or classicists who will never listen to it, they only want to listen to the original and read the subtitles. And I'm not sure where the, your guy's school of thought is on that. I will answer this question. Sub versus dub is a debate that is as old as the fandom itself. And it yeah. mostly came around from the fact that the very early anime dubs kind of which were mostly just taking select episodes of a certain show putting them on home video they immediately went into hide everything that this show is from japan mode so you know for example in captain harlock one of the major side characters tadashi daiba he got his name changed to somebody like tommy dexter or you know in robotech specifically the macross saga our main character hikaru ichijo his name was changed to rick hunter you see this in four kids where katsuya jonochi becomes joey wheeler and that's not to rag on the Yu-Gi-Oh people the four kids actors are fantastic in their own right i love the acting in those dubs but it's also due to the fact that in the early days of anime dubbing 
Streamline Pictures, which was one of the major dubbing companies, were known for taking liberties. This was also true of Manga UK. To a lesser extent, Ocean did a lot of those early manga dubs, but also there was the issue that a lot of those dubs just weren't that good. Nowadays, I have a saying that I post on social media where I say, I miss the days when dubs were awful. Because the acting, it's superb nowadays. We have an incredible stable of actors across New York, California, and Texas. The likes of Kyle McCarley, Kyle Abair, Matt Mercer, Patrick Seitz, Josh Grayley, Sheremy Lee, Monica Rial, Lisa Ortiz, Dan Green, Wayne Grayson, my personal favorite, Jameson Price, Jamie Markey, and the list goes on and on, and I'm just doing this all off the top of my head. I didn't write any of this down, but yeah. there's still complaints where you get the dub that isn't quite up to par with the Japanese in terms of its acting. Like, maybe somebody is miscast or the direction isn't all that great. And, of course, nowadays the big culture war is over scripts and localization. There are certain English script writers who I could name that are known for taking some liberties that don't really sit well with people. Though nowhere near as bad as, say, uh, Tim will get this one, Stephen Foster. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> to me, the dub versus sub nowadays, it to me, it shouldn't come down to what do you think is better. It more or less comes down to which do you prefer. And right. if a dub is good, chances are I'll probably stick with it going to the Japanese from time to time. I've mentioned this before, and I said this to you off the record, but Ocean, if you read the reviews of some of their past dubs, they kind of get a mixed reception, although I feel that reception is more or less based on who directs the dub, because usually some of Carl's dubs tend to be very well reviewed. I was talking with my co-host William, aka Lord Crab, about this, and I said that, you know, are you going to check out the Conan dub, and he said... Is it directed by Carl Willems? And I told him, yeah, it is. And he said, okay, you've sold me. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of piggyback on that, I mean, I would, of course, say that most uh, anime fans, at least our age, maybe late 20s, early to mid 30s, we've got an appreciation for the uh, for the Ocean Studio dubs because a lot of those dubs were ones that uh, came on and aired on Cartoon Network if they weren't, say, the... Because Bandai, at least at that time, it felt like that they were using either Bang Zoom or Ocean for their dubs. And for the longest time, they would use Ocean for, say, like the Gundam dubs, just for an example. And of course, you know, and of course, if you were a Ranma fan you know very well that that was an ocean dub too and so Inuyasha and so, and so was Inuyasha yeah so I think that a lot of us have uh, appreciation for ocean studios especially given you know a lot of the notables uh, that came out of there uh, folks like Richard Ian Cox Kelly Sheridan and rest his soul Kirby Morrow just to name a few and again it's exactly what he said it's definitely one of those cases where the quality of dubs has gotten so much better to a point where it, it honestly is a debate that should have died the moment that multiple languages were available on uh, on dvds like it's an argument that should be dead and buried and in the ground but i mean i guess you you, you gotta find something to complain about these days <laughs> to yeah. hop off of that the only way you could get japanese audio on your anime back in the days of vhs tapes 
you had to buy a sub-only tape, and those tapes were expensive. Yeah, or at, or at best, they were the same price as the dub tapes. Well, it's interesting for me because, uh, as I say, probably in the last few years of working uh, as a voiceover actor, I suppose, I think probably Future Boy Conan is probably one of the more higher-profile projects uh, I've done. And, and I was curious when the show came out, I, I, and I put myself on this is kind of how I connected with you guys because on social media I had happened to sort of retweet and, and post or a comment or two that said I had, I hope people enjoy the show I, I worked on this I voiced the character of Captain Dice on this and people were largely I don't think this believe me it's Twitter so people would have told me they, it sucked they would have told me quite happily that it, that it sucked but largely have, have gotten good reviews and people who, who have liked the, the English language dub so I'm happy uh, people have enjoyed the show or however way they watch it but um, it's sort of a newer world for me to enter in, the, in that regard. So I'm, uh, I've been really honored that people have in turn reached out to me or dropped me a line or an email um, online to say, hey, I really like the show. Thanks for tipping me off about it or, or spreading word about the, the release. So I first heard about you when my co-host Dan, he sent me a link to the trailer for Conan on YouTube and he saw your comment underneath there. Because usually most anime voice actors on their Twitter like some of the ones that I mentioned, the likes of Jamie Markey, Jeremy Lee, Bryce Pappenbrook, and Griffin Burns, they'll announce a role on Twitter, but they won't really say too much about it. I have never seen somebody hype up a role like you have. You did a great <laughs> job of promoting the show, and oh, well, I was, I was so. Happy, yeah. Because, yeah, I was happy to do it, yeah. Because I, we've talked about the dub, and we gave our thoughts on the dub versus sub debate. But I never haven't given my thoughts on the dub, and I can say you did the show justice. I love this English dub. I actually watched the dub more than the subtitles the second time around, because you could tell that Carl was getting the best out of his people. Oh, no doubt about that. Well, that's kind of you guys would say. I'm, I'm, I, uh, I, it's funny you say that because i hyping the show. I noticed at one point, geez, I guess I'm probably, I thought there might be more other people commenting, but I, uh, or maybe some people like to keep a distance from things or they're moving on to something else so they don't talk about it. But I was, I realized, and as I say, this is just the English language dub of this, you know, with the new release of it. We're not part of the original uh, production crew and animators that, that were in any way, you know, responsible for really what, what it is. This is just a new thing. But I, I, I was really happy to sort of have a little footnote in the history of a Miyazaki production like that and to be a part of something in that regard that uh, that hopefully you know as, as a lot of people who hadn't hadn't seen it before and I gather there had been one English language dub before um, years ago that I saw some comments online about and little clips of there are two known English dubs the first of which was a dub that aired on Animax in Singapore which is if you know Animax, the dub quality of that is not not exactly uh, not exactly the best. The other yeah. one was that apparently there was a an attempt by Streamline Pictures to try to dub and distribute Future Boy Conan like to other markets, but apparently they were stopped supposedly by Alexander Key's estate. As of this recording, that dub is lost media. The only real proof of its existence was that there was, like, a Conan special collection that was released for, like, the PS2. And wow. one of the special features was a clip of the dub that had an exchange between Captain Dice and Monsley featuring Captain Dice voiced by the late Mike Reynolds. Huh. Interesting. That is, that is very interesting. 
I mean, you want to talk about, you know, lost and old dubs. I mean, that's a that's an entire rabbit hole that you could get lost into very easily. <laughs> yeah. So to talk about the cast, everybody is well cast, in my humble opinion, which is what makes this dub so enjoyable. I love Sabrina Petra's performance as Conan, which she has parlayed into being the main role in Dragon Quest, The Adventure of Dai, the 2020 version of that, I should say. I, w I worked on that myself. I, uh, I had a small uh, small role in that my myself as a as a, an announcer during a, a stadium event. That's fantastic. Had, uh, there were a couple of couple episodes there, but um... I love Lily Bedoin at. Is that how you say her name? It's Bodoin. It's how it, it's how it's spelled. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm saying That's it right. wrong. I enjoyed her as Lana. Hang on, let me let me just uh, type. Time. It's time time for dead air, people. <laughs> <laughs> A uh, longtime ocean stalwart Aaron Matthews played Jimsy. For all you My Little Pony fans, she is Little Strongheart the Bison. Kazumi Evans, who is Rarity's singing voice in the My Little Pony series, plays Monsley. The name that stuck out to me, though, and this was a case of mistaken identity, Luke, who was one of the citizens on High Harbor, he's voiced by David Kay, and I immediately thought, oh, cool, we got the voice of Megatron in this show. Nope. Different David K. <laughs> this guy's credited as David A.K. Some names that I did recognize, though. Gundam fans will be familiar with Alex Zahara as Lepka, whom Gundam fans will recognize as the voice of Lock-On Stratos from Gundam 00. Yeah, and as I say, I... Uh... Uh, I knew I knew Alex Zahara in the early 1990s uh, when we were at UBC Film School together. Uh, I was I was directing and also I was taking uh, interesting enough I was taking a Japanese cinema class at the time where I was studying the work of uh, Kanachikawa, a uh, Japanese filmmaker. But uh, Alex was another guy who was just around the the film school building at the time. And uh, but and lo and behold, all these years later, we would end up on uh, on this English language dub of Future Boy Conan. Speaking of Gundam, you mentioned Hiro Kanagawa earlier. He was yeah. also in Gundam. He was one of Gundam's most notorious antagonists as he was the voice of Giren Zabi in the original Gundam series. Orlo, the jerk who lives in High Harbor, is played by Vincent Tong. You may recognize him as Toda in Death Note. Uh, two of Captain Dice's crew members, Dong Goros, is played by Mike Adamthwaite, whose name I only bring up just because I like saying it, but he's been in a ton <laughs> of stuff. Uh, the chef guy, Gucci, great name by the way, is voiced by the immortal Michael Dobson. Yes, he's a big presence here on the Vancouver uh, dubbing scene, that's for sure. And a voice that will be familiar to many of my generation, Richard Newman plays Mr. Gull. You may recognize him as the voice of Rhinox in Beast Wars. He's Bear Hugger in the 2011 Punch-Out remake. And he actually had a role that kind of went viral in the mid to late 2000s because he was M. Bison in the Street Fighter cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have ever seen that clip of M. Bison going, yes! Yes! That's Richard Newman. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> All of these factors, the direction, the casting, and the acting itself made for a fantastic dub. It's one of Ocean's best. I would put this up there with 
the aforementioned dub for Black Lagoon. It is that damn good. And one that I think I actually ended up preferring over the Japanese, if only because I felt the voices were just as good as the Japanese side. So, we've spent a good chunk of time talking about our impressions, the animation, its history, the dubbing. Now we come to just talking about the show itself. Now, if you are a fan of any medium, film, music, television, literature, there are plenty of pieces of media that are acclaimed as being historical significance, keystones, one of the greatest pieces of media ever made. Stuff that is claimed by scholars and critics as seminal masterpieces, major pillars of any given medium. But oftentimes, when you go and you watch, read, listen, whatever, it's not as good to you if you're not a part of that, like, sort of super elitist crowd. Like, for example, many people say that Casablanca is one of the greatest movies ever made. I've seen it a few times, mostly in school, and I think I saw it at university. I've never been a big Casablanca fan. Likewise, people consider Ulysses and Moby Dick to be some of the greatest books ever written, but, like, unless you're an English major, those books can be real tedious to get through at certain points. And, you know, the same can ring true for anime. There's plenty of anime that may be historically significant, but don't necessarily hold up. Not because of elements that one may find problematic, but it's just that, you know, some may be on the redundant side, because we're still in the era of Monster of the Week sort of shows, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Tokusatsu fans can tell you, Monster of the Week shows can be plenty entertaining, but for a casual fan who expects changes or status quo things from week to week, they might not want to watch something like that on a binge sort of basis. I reviewed Kashan a while back, and I appreciate it for its merits, and I do think it's a good show, but at 35 episodes for Monster of the Week, it can drag a little bit. But I can safely say that putting my historical blinders and biases aside, I think Future Boy Conan is one of those seminal works that withstands the test of time. I think it is one of the best anime of the decade, and dare I say, one of the best shows ever made. It definitely holds up extremely well. Uh, for a show made in that time period. Uh, I would definitely uh, agree with that. It's high praise. Yeah, it's um, certainly watching it from my perspective and not knowing as near as much as you guys uh, know of the anime world. I, I certainly enjoyed it and, and thought it had a... There's a certain a sort of timeless quality to it as well. Even if the animation to us, maybe we look at it and we say, well, this is definitely... This is not something that's recently been made. It feels... There's, it's, it's done from in another era. I think maybe the, because the scan is so good, because the audio is so good, we don't get caught up in any, oh, this is something from the late 70s, you know? Um, so it's, and as I say, some of the themes in it are, are discussed are, are, are something that, uh, is, is some of the stuff we're talking about today, you know, interesting in, in, in some of the thematic stuff, whether it's the environment or whether it's use of solar power that much needed, all these things. It's interesting that uh, it has these notes that doesn't necessarily feel like it's caught in time of another era. 
While the message of the environment rings true in all of Miyazaki's works, especially in the likes of Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, which is also a post-apocalyptic story, it's also present in one of his most acclaimed works, Princess Mononoke. I guess also in that regard, there's anti-war themes as well, which, which were also explored in Nausicaa and what many people consider his best, Porco Rosso. But the reason why I feel it holds up and why I think it's timeless it's likely because it doesn't look anything like what was coming out in the 70s at the time. That it has that sort of more polished and clean look to it, at least compared to something like Ashtano Joe or the robot romance trilogy and dynamic planning stuff. The themes present like of the environmentalism, the story beats, etc., and the characters. And I think we have to start by just talking about Conan himself. How would you guys describe Conan? Conan, I would describe him as just sort of this kid who's effectively up for anything. A strong sense of morality in just the fact that, you know, he was like, hey, this girl is in trouble. I'm going to go on ahead and do whatever it takes for me to help her. He gets caught up, but it, but it never looks to him like the weight of the entire thing ever weighs him down. And I think that was very refreshing for this uh, for this series he's remarkably strong for a kid his age of course and he survived i think there's almost a couple times in an episode particularly those, those early episodes where he he's in puts himself in some some danger and manages to survive against all costs so he's uh, he's an interesting interesting character that way he, um he is up for anything in that regard and uh and, and quite a brave young lad so yeah he has absolutely no hesitation to put himself uh where he could be put in, putting himself in danger, which, you know, as long as it's to help someone. You look at your first impression of Conan in the first episode, a scene that to me is one of the greatest introductory scenes to a character ever, where the first seven or so minutes of episode one is him underwater pursuing a shark. And there's no dialogue or anything. You immediately get a sense of the sort of character that Conan is. A character who is willing to put his life on the line just for anything. In this case, for the first two episodes, it's his grandfather. The kind of brave alpha male hero was pretty popular in the early 70s. I already mentioned Go Nagai. You had these larger-than-life, over-the-top personalities like Koji Kabuto, Duke Freed, Ryoma Nagare, even the ones that weren't made by Dynamic Planning. Um, the main characters in the Robot Romance trilogy, there were these sort of brave, hot-blooded, don't-worry-here-we-come-to-save-the-day types. Conan is sort of that, but as a kid, he doesn't have that hyper-masculine element to him. But he sort of has that childlike bravery, the kind of a kid who goes into the woods by himself to kind of prove that he's brave on a dare to his friends. But in this case, Conan sort of does it out of survival instinct. He's not doing it to save humanity. He's doing it, you know, just to sustain life on what we know as Remnant Island. Once Lana comes into the picture... That's when he's given a motivation to actually go out and save the world. But he's not doing it for himself. He's doing it for Lana because he knows that it's the right thing to do. When somebody is in danger, he's willing to put his life on the line just to defend them. 
and he's the classic brave hero. A good hero is one who's willing to do the right thing, no matter how big or small they may be, and it's that moral code that makes Conan so endearing. Oh, absolutely. Like, you would think that a, a character in a series like this today, like, he would spend, like, an entire episode ruminating on, you know, what all this means and everything, but yeah, Conan, <laughs> do Conan doesn't do that. He's basically like, okay, I'm here, what do we do, what do we gotta do here to get, uh, to get out of this mess? Aaron, anything to add? He isn't so much a shoot first, ask questions later, so much as it is save the day, ask questions later, because... Even with all of this burden on his shoulder, first Lana, then the people of Industria, then the people of High Harbor, then Dr. Lau, and so many others, Conan never once thinks about whether it's all worth it. He just knows that he has to do the right thing. Even if he may be outmatched, outnumbered, even if he's armed with just a harpoon... He knows that he has to do something. Now, there are some who can say that, well, he doesn't really have a character arc, but I would also say that he does grow as a character, being a simple, innocent kid living with his grandfather to a brave hero who's willing to put an entire civilization on his back without a second thought. You compare him to somebody like, say, Kashan from Robot Hunter Kashan earlier, where he's a human boy who was transplanted into the body of a cyborg, and he's constantly weighing whether or not he's keeping his humanity, or whether humanity is even worth saving at points, given some of their behavior towards robots at the time, or some of the heroes that came afterwards that were kind of made by people who watched Conan. Look at Amuro, for example, from Gundam, where he contemplates whether or not it's worth fighting for, and then you have Shinji from Evangelion, who rejects putting the burden of others on his shoulders. Conan doesn't contemplate anything. He just goes forward, even if he knows it could be the last thing he sees. It, it was actually really refreshing watching it, seeing that that was the um, that that was his character. Like that, that was remarkable just to watch. The modern shonen hero nowadays is somebody who feels like they need to get stronger, or master a new technique, or learn how to control their power, or defeat somebody more powerful than them. With Conan, it's as basic as basic can get. I just need to save the day. And that's that. And I guess in that regard, you could say that Conan is kind of a giga-chad. <laughs> I think that's all pretty insightful uh, uh, analysis of his character, for sure. And on the subject of Conan, I also want to talk about Lana as well. If you know your Miyazaki, you know that he has a thing for making female characters either the protagonist or a major focal point of his works. Now, there are discussions, discourse online, shall we say, about what constitutes a quote-unquote strong female character. Some say that, you know, a strong female character is one who is always proactive in a story. One that, you know, is always seeing the action, beating up the bad guys, etc. To me, Lana is a character who doesn't really see any action. Like, she doesn't really fire any weapons. She doesn't actively get involved in combat. She spends more time playing a passive role in the story, but I consider her to be a strong female character 
because she does so much to influence others in the story. She isn't just some damsel in distress. She's a girl who understands the burden on her shoulders. Conan is somebody who can hold a burden on his shoulders, if that makes any sense. But Lana, meanwhile, has to deal with knowing who her grandfather is with Dr. Lau. And knowing that she's going to be hunted down by Lepka and the people of Industria. Yeah, very much so. Like, Lana, I think, and we know about that from Lana pretty much from word go. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, even if she's staying, when she's being held in Industria waiting for Conan, it's not like she's constantly brooding over needing to be rescued. When she's faced with the opportunity to sell out her grandpa, to tell Lepka where High Harbor and her people's whereabouts are, she stands strong and refuses to budge. To me, that is what a strong female character embodies. Someone who, when under pressure, refuses to yield to the powers of evil. She's Conan's whole reason for doing what he does, because as soon as she gets kidnapped in the first episode, Conan doesn't think twice. He rushes out to go save her, and she's always in contact with Conan, near or far, and I love their dynamic together. Oh yeah, the dynamic that they have, it's very its very much just, I won't overuse refreshing, but it's a fun dynamic that I think really shows just, you know, how e how one relies upon the other, and it's just, you know, it's, it's heartwarming is what it is. They have a very wholesome relationship. Conan sort of being this boy raised... Not necessarily in the wilderness, but he's more like a country boy, to put it mildly. Whereas Lana, coming from High Harbor, would you call her a city kid or something like that? Like somebody who's raised in a more, uh, don't want to say privileged or affluent. Like, how would you describe Lana's origins, she, where she comes from? She has a better sense of community, I think is, a better, is probably the better way to describe her. The, the only real place that Conan's been is Remnant Island. Once he goes out there and he sees the world, he soon realizes that there's so much more to this world that he doesn't know. I want to say Lana, I'm finding the words to describe Lana because she's simple yet so complex at the same time. Yeah, and it's funny too, you know, you hear a couple times throughout that when somebody, when Conan mentions Somebody asks him where he's from, and he says Remnant Island. People, have, I've never heard of it. <laughs> you know, so we learn that uh, not only is he, uh, you know, uh, a kid that's been raised in isolation, probably to his his benefit, because he's probably lent him his strength and being able to sort of have some confidence in himself. But uh, the idea that uh, when he's aboard the ship, I think uh, Dice or somebody asks him where he's from, and he says Remnant Island, and they, the crew have no idea. You know, they never heard of the place. You know, so we. Either they're dumb, which is quite plausible, but also there's a suggestion, I think, that uh, it's it's well off the deep end of the map, you know, like that uh, people don't know. There are so many people in this world that suggestions that live in isolation who have never been anywhere beyond whatever island they're living on. And, you know, this is a spoiler for the ending, but there is so much more to Remnant Island that, that meets the eye. It's foreshadowed in the first episode but in the finale is when it really becomes obvious definitely and lana is sort of the key to bringing this whole world of people 
who've kind of lived in isolation together because the people in High Harbor, even though they live in fear of industria, they go on with their own daily lives in a much more civilized world. Whereas industria is very much, it's a communist state, to put it mildly. And I want to talk about industria and its people. Um, do I have... But I think ultimately what makes Lana so strong is, is that like Conan, she's willing to risk everything. But whereas Conan puts himself out of the way in favor of others, Lana is willing to risk herself for her grandfather and the people of High Harbor. In that regard, she's not all that dissimilar from Conan. The only difference is that one is active and one is passive in their actions. Yeah, I think, uh, again, good analysis. And I want to talk about Industria first, but I want to talk about one more character, Jimsy. Or as I just simply wrote down, Conan's equal. Jimsy is pretty much a country boy. He's lived in the wilderness his whole life. We don't even know if he had parents or not, but <laughs> compared to Conan, he's more, I would say, street smart when it comes to the wilderness because... He has these sort of primal instincts that not even Conan has. I think that changes as you see him. You know, in the beginning, he's almost sort of comic relief in, in a sense. I mean, there's a, there's a few characters that have a comic side of them, of course. They may, arguably, they all do. But, um, you know, his, his main concern just to be, seems to be food and drink, <laughs> you know, in the beginning. But you realize he's got a, quite a strength of character himself, especially, uh, and not to give away too many spoilers, in the wake of, you know, first being aboard the Barracuda, where they're disciplined uh, as uh, new crew members. He realizes that uh, Conan kind of took his share of the beating, and, and you could see a sort of face falls and realizes he's been sort of this lazy bum more concerned about when his next meal's coming than he realized always oh, he, he realizes he's got some you know conan is uh, you know took one for the team his you know took one for him and and he could see a media change in him in that regard and or he recognizes at least what happened jimsy as you said he starts out as comic relief and yeah he's been very complacent he spent his whole life you know just hunting lizards capturing others taking whatever harvest or plants he has to Captain Dice's crew in exchange for whatever goods he can get or Smokies. He's a very selfish character at the beginning. But as the series goes on, Jimsy, like Conan, soon realizes just how important these other people around him are. And he becomes more than just a little country bumpkin. He's an active hero. And yeah, some of my favorite moments is him interacting with others. To me, the turning point for Jimsy is when he goes to High Harbor and experiences human civilization for the first time. There's a really great scene involving Jimsy and a pig, but uh, I'm not gonna really spoil it for you. <laughs> you see the pig on the box cover of the show. Not He's right probably placed not that one it's um a little bit oh i'm thinking of i'm thinking of another one. yeah sorry that's right he's a great foil for conan at first but soon he becomes conan's loyal i don't want to say sidekick but partner in crime or heroing yeah those two guys become a team and then uh, later on again not giving a spoiler i sort of dice sort of joins along with them for in, in that regard, it felt like to me, and you know, and, and you could talk. I don't know if you're getting into Dice too much, but Dice and himself. When I, when you see him, especially when he's interacting with Monsley, those one or two first scenes you see him in, he's um, he's very. I, I and I really 
tried to play up how snivelly he was and sort of condescending. And he's, you know, you can see how two-faced he is. He's very polite and, and warm to uh, Monsley, but he can't stand her, you know, like, so I, I, I remember when we, when we did those lines, I really tried to play up how, uh, how greasy this guy was. <laughs> Well, we'll get to Captain Dice, but I want yeah. to talk about um, the villain of the show, Lepka. Yes. And I gotta say, I love Lepka as a villain. Kind of the prototypical Miyazaki villain. I mentioned Castle in the Sky earlier, but you can draw a line right from him to Colonel Muska in that movie. Definitely, yeah. It's very much a, it's very much a straight line. He's very much modeled after a dictator, like Benito Mussolini or Joseph Stalin. I wrote down in my notes, he dresses like Vladimir Lenin. Yeah, there's something, uh, you know, party apparatchik uh, about him that, uh, in that regard, isn't there? He's pretty much made himself like the sole ruler of Industria. He does have a high council that works beneath him, like, as advisors. Kind of like how the president will have advisors on certain issues. But make no mistake... He's the man ruling Industria with an iron fist. And even if his design may be simple, well, maybe a little goofy because he's got like that big square head that you see on certain Miyazaki characters. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that uh, Lepka's rank is higher than the commission because I got that the other way around in my mind that, that he had to answer them, but he was conniving behind the scenes to them because I'm just reminded of the scene mentioned as spoilers were. The show is almost 50 years old. You can do it. I suppose. I suppose. So. I think you're right, Nate. The when when uh, Dice is called to meet the uh, the council, the commission there, you know, Dice and and Lepka are kind of going at it, and the council one one of the guys in the council said, "That's enough from both of you." You know, it feels like they're 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 still maintaining, which makes uh, you know Lepka's character perhaps even more deceitful. That he's he's got his own agenda that he's running behind you know the the commission that uh, he just probably sees them as a hindrance to what he wants to do uh, but and eventually assume you know greater power uh, but he has to sort of work with these guys and at least uh, make it look like he's he's answering to them but uh, I wrote this down and this is timely because I'm kind of going through these movies with my father I wrote down that he's basically a bond villain specifically Scaramanga from the man with the golden gun <laughs> especially with the whole solar energy thing but his demeanor comes off more as telly savalas as blofeld in <laughs> one of my favorite bond films on her majesty's secret service oh yeah i love that one too hey it's a christmas movie too yeah like he has that aura of menace and grandeur that makes him more than just your simple ha ha i'm evil kind of villain yeah. that you were seeing a lot of in the 1970s. Compare Lepka to somebody like, say, Dr. Hell from Mazinger Z or Prince Heinel from Voltus V. He's a lot closer to Dessler from Space Battleship Yamato or Deslock if you're watching the Star Blazers dub. He's willing to do whatever it takes to achieve his own goals, even if it means up and up killing the people of Industria or anyone who dares oppose him. Yeah, he has no precautions on uh, on taking folks out if he has to. Definitely. And unlike other villains, and like other villains, he doesn't get a redemption arc. He's a villain through and through, and a great one at that. But of course now, 
we must discuss the real star of the show. We have to talk about Captain Dice. (laughs) Aaron, how would you describe Captain Dice? Well, Dice is uh, hes a sort of an authority figure in terms of an old soldier, old Navy man, obviously, you know, and um, uh, when you first see him, you know, he's rarely ever out of that, out of, out of uniform, it's, you know, especially in the, the, probably the first half of the whole series, and maybe later on he changes a little bit, but I thought it was great because I was, he, was, he was so much fun to voice because, again, he's a character that starts off clearly as a bad guy he's not and he's even probably sometimes he's not always maybe he's a good bad guy because he's got his own agenda and stuff like that and, and it, one of the reasons it's interesting i was in re-watching the episodes when it around maybe six or seven episodes in you know when he, his allegiance uh, changes that allegiance changes be, not necessarily because of you know there's a there's a question of him being he's not going to be humiliated you know, he's got his own agenda and he's quite happy to just sail the seas, uh, you know, as his own master of his own, you know, future in that regard. He, he, he leaves the, he leaves the, the world of industrial without much, uh, fear, knowing that it's going to be problematic, but uh, he's also quite confident that he could do it. The way the character looks with his mustache and everything and everything, it was, it was, there was one way to play him, you know, that he had, you realize what kind of character that, uh, that he was, but he, I, again, there's moments in, in, when you first meet him, he's this sort of really greasy, conniving character. And then there's, there's, there's quite a broad array of emotions in, in regard to the point that then, of course, later on, and mentioned, I mentioned the spoiler thing again, where he becomes, you know, sort of one of the team and is quite happy and his, has a certain recklessness to him. In fact, he, one of the, I think, I think Monsley calls him old and reckless in one episode, <laughs> you know, like, and it's funny, the, the arc, of course, that he has with her, uh, in the, in the whole nature of the show, you know, that, uh, you don't necessarily see that coming when they first meet. Yeah, it was great, especially coming from, you know, one of the last major things or la- last, you know, a couple things I'd worked on between the Tobots and, and World Trigger, where I, uh, voiced Masamune, Commander Kido. Very sort of stern, really controlled characters. You know, Dice was so crazy and all over the map at times. And, and uh, you know, I, it, he's got that laugh, which I really enjoyed doing in the studio. It's this really loud bark of a laugh that, uh, that always cracked Carl up when we were doing it. I, I, I wanted to sort of add that kind of... Uh, is, is this guy... I don't know if he's playing with a full deck, you know, like uh, aspect to the, to the character. Regarding Captain Dice's mustache, I forgot to make this comment earlier. I meant to say, like, Captain Dice and his Waluigi mustache. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote down Captain Dice at the beginning of the show. I would describe Captain Dice at the beginning of the show as being, and I quote, a useful idiot. (laughs) Like, he's mostly just there to carry out Lepka's duties and not question them. But of course, as you said, he's kind of going into business for himself. He doesn't care what happens. He just wants to make the money and have a nice meal at the end of the day. That's what they say about him. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, Tim, uh, you had a little way to describe uh, Captain Dice. Uh, How would you describe Captain Dice? I I said when I saw him that Captain Dice almost reminds me of, I guess you would either say like an ancestor or a descendant of, of Inspector Zenigata from the Lupin series. Specifically, part two was Zenigata. (laughs) And that makes sense, of course, when you look at the connections between the staff on Conan. Miyazaki, Takahata, Yasuo Otsuka, among others. And then you look at how Captain Dice is designed. 
same general head shape as Captain Dice, only he's got a mustache, and, you know, the face is a little different. But like Captain Dice, he is kind of a bumbler and is also there for comedy relief, although, in this case, his comedy comes at the expense of others who are smarter or more able-bodied than him. Yeah, very much so. I, I, there's, there's weird moments where he also sort of displays, uh, you know, moral code that you don't think he has. There's, you know, when there's a scene where Lana is believed dead, uh, you know, when her boat is, and, and he sort of yells at Lepka, you know, I, I yelled at Lepka and say, you, you know, you idiot, that, you know, Lana was aboard that boat and, and Lepka didn't know. Why didn't, and Lepka says, why didn't you say something? Say the line. And I really tried to sort of uh, put enough sauce on it that, that when I said it, that it was like, you know, these were just kids, you know, what, what, you're sort of questioning, you know, what, what, what were you doing? What were you thinking? You know, what, what, what's the point of all this, you know? And, and he sort of shows uh, what, what heretofore you didn't really see in his character. So these weird little moments where he has, he sort of displays his own code of things where perhaps at the beginning you wouldn't think he was capable of that. I would describe his relationship with Lana as he's more or less loyal to her out of obligation in that he's trying to butter up to her to try and gain her trust like i'm not like that bad guy lepka i'm gonna treat you like you know actual royalty in reality he's just sort of doing it to sort of gain like status of some sorts yes yes but, I think you know, I think that's a fair once, assessment. Yeah. Once Lana goes missing, that's when you realize that he actually does have feelings for her. And I think, you know, you talked about how you might misconstrue this, but I didn't really find anything sort of problematic with it because I yeah. think he, Dice understands that Lana is just a young girl, but seeing how much Lepka wants her is like, "Oh, this girl must be important." So I must treat her like she's some kind of VIP. Yeah, I think there's I think there's definitely more of a shade of that than than, than yeah. Otherwise. That's a yeah. that's a fair that that's a fair description I would say. Like once he meets Conan and Jimsy, the the first couple episodes, it's like something out of the Old Testament of the Bible, like Daniel in the lion's den, where he punishes <laughs> Conan and Jimsy. You know, giving uh, giving Conan like all of those plankings not that kind of planking having them to do all the work by shoveling all of that plastid and so forth and just seeing conan endure all of this punishment it sort of changes his perception of conan like he's not just some annoying little kid he's got a lot of fight to him and as the show goes on and captain dice gets to see more of the world one of my favorite captain dice moments in the show is when he's left in the desert to die by lepka <laughs> and he's in That's that right. he's in that boneyard with all of that old war equipment and the scene where he tries to try and feign being dead oh god that was a <laughs> chuckle and a half oh that 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 was fun no two ways <laughs> he is easily my favorite character in the whole show not just because there are moments that make you laugh but moments that show that he's more than just some bumbling old henchman Every villain sort of needs their noble henchman. This was common in anime and tokusatsu at the time. Dice, meanwhile, is a lot more nuanced. He has to try and play both sides of the ball. He's trying to be a loyal servant to Lepka and subsequently Industria, but at the same time, he's only doing this just because he needs the money. And then once he finds Conan and learns that there is more to the world than just Industria, that's when he truly earns his title of captain. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good assessment, uh, Nate, yeah. And this sort of segues into another character that we have to talk about, and that's Monsley. Speaking of characters with big arcs, if Captain Dice is loyal to Lepka out of his own self-interest, then Monsley is loyal to Lepka for the sake of Industria. She is willing to take a bullet for this man at the start of the series. She takes her job very seriously. Yeah, she's a very confident uh, character to you know the the extent that uh, quite happy to order dice around. That's for sure. Yeah, no, no two ways. She's got no hesitation herself. Would you call her a girl boss? <laughs> I think that probably fits. <laughs> I don't know if there's ranks in Industria, but you can clearly tell that she's sort of number one among the commanders in Industria, among the servants. Yeah, it sure seems so. Yeah. I, I do find it funny, though, that the rivalry isn't just between a more comedic henchman and a more serious henchman, but it's also a rivalry between land and sea. Captain Dice's specialty yeah. is naval combat. Monsley's specialty is in the air. That's a neat. Uh, that's 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 a neat insight. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. I think that's a. Uh, I think that's a neat parallel. It's ironic then that, and a key moment in their arc is that. Monsley isn't the one who defeats Captain Dice. Nobody wins this conflict. <laughs> yeah. So very true. It's once she and her forces launch an attack on High Harbor that her character truly changes. And ultimately their rivalry is settled. But, you know, we've spoiled some stuff about Future Boy Conan and we don't want to spoil too much. Like, is there anything else we can say about Captain Dice? Because... Conan may be the main character in the show, and I feel Lana is the most important character, but my favorite character is Captain Dice because there is just so much more. He could have easily been a two-bit bumbling henchman, like somebody out of a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. He could have been <laughs> Muttley. He could have been, oh, I don't know, a Yosemite Sam kind of character, but he's not. Yeah. No, very much so. He's certainly my favorite for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> nah, but, uh, he he's just a he's just a fun as heck character, and really seeing his progression throughout the entire series is a joy. Arguably, he has a bigger character arc than Conan because Conan <laughs> is mostly pulled in one direction: his own obligations to try and save the world. Whereas with Captain Dice, he's being pulled in multiple directions, trying to be loyal to Industria, the people of High Harbor, his interactions with Conan and Lana. Ultimately, though, he abandons Industria and decides that he's going to become an actual captain and lead in the reconstruction of the New World. Yeah, he was he was a he was a fun character to watch and and I was when we were finally done. Wrapping the show, I was I was sad to read the last line uh, that I would do his dice. I thought, man, I wish this guy had a had his own spinoff show or something. It would have been a fun to see a whole a whole new show on dice or something. But no kidding. But but it was yeah, it was fun to do. There's one of my favorite things to do just well, in passing, and this is not a spoiler because it doesn't really spoil anything. But just playing him drunk uh, <laughs> was was great fun too. And and I remember laughing a lot with uh, with Carl and the engineer as we sort of did those lines. <laughs> <laughs> and whatnot i that was that was a blast too your portrayal of captain dice i simply describe as 
Aaron Chapman is simply having the time of his life in the booth. <laughs> that's that's true. There was a lot of times just like they were okay, Aaron, just chew up the scenery wherever you want to read this, you know, like and uh, it's kind of like <laughs> I would put this up there with the likes of Doug Smith as Kintaro in Golden Boy. Yes. <laughs> uh, ben Diskin as Joseph Joestar in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, and uh, whomever it was that played uh, Dark Schneider in the 2022 version of Bastard as one of those male performances where you can tell the actor was loving every single minute <laughs> of being in that booth voicing that character. Oh yeah, very very true, very true. It was great fun. We did one last, um, I think on the last day of uh, doing it, my... I think my mom had, for my birthday or something, had got me a captain's hat. I was going to ask you about this! Yeah, and we did a, we, in the studio that day, we did a, I put the captain's hat on and I read the last few lines with the captain's hat on uh, and took a picture in the studio, which I held on to for months, uh, months afterwards, because, uh, and not put it out until the, the, the news of the release came up, but I thought that would be a fun, uh, a fun way to announce, uh, at least my involvement with it, and I, and I, I think I put that on a couple of tweets or, or com comments on, on Twitter or Facebook about, uh, when the show got released, but, uh, yeah, it's, it was, it was great, it was so much, uh, so much fun to, to go in twice a week, I couldn't wait to come back, uh, and, and do it, and, uh, and, you know, I didn't, I hadn't seen the show before, I didn't know, so I didn't, to me, watching it when you're dubbing it or you're in there, I don't know what's happening next, you know, with him. I, I would uh, sometimes I'd stick around the studio and just ask, what's, what, is, what happens after this? I, you know, so it was, uh, yeah, it was great. It was such a fun project to be a part of. I was so so honored to, to, uh, to take part. Do we have a favorite Captain Dice moment? <laughs> well, for, I, for me, there is one, yes. Aside from his uh, drunken moment at the bar uh, there when the, when the, here's the announcement over the PA system industry. There's a scene where the Barracuda is being chased, and he's put Lana on the masthead of the boat as sort of his security to, sh you know, so they won't shoot at us if they know that she's here on their ship with us, especially if we put her right <laughs> in the very front of the boat. And that quickly seems, that plan seems to go wrong in her, and he hasn't realized. Uh, but he, he's acting out, he sort of acts out to, to Lana what, how that, how it's going to go. And he's, and he screams at Lepka, uh, from the from the boat, uh, calling him a coward, and, and he's just yelling, screaming into the air. But <laughs> and for for some reason, that was that was so much fun to do in the studio. And, and uh, he's laughing, and and he's kind of in, you see, there's a certain bravery there, but there's a certain insanity about about Dice as well. That he's sort of showing all his emotions at once in that in that scene. That he's that he's he sort of has a cutting enough mind, but it's. It's probably shortchanged by his own insanity at times, and also uh, that he hasn't fully thought it out. Um, but at the same time, he's brave enough to go for it. Um, but that was that was a really fun. I remember screaming, "Lapka!" You know, like I won't do it in my apartment here because I'll wake up my neighbors. But uh, just screaming Lepka and calling him a coward and things like that were, were were great fun to do. That was that was certainly one of my favorite scenes. There's others too, but but that's the one that uh, jumps to mind. I think one that comes to mind. And there's a lot. Like, I love seeing him working in a High Harbor as a blacksmith. The moment where he is first legitimately defeated, not by anybody from Industria. This is one part I won't spoil, but when Captain Dice is defeated at sea, it is in the most lovingly anticlimactic way possible. <laughs> <laughs> And how about that costume he wears when he goes into the jail? Um, that that wild, 
uh, oh, the Bob, oh, the Bob. tries to rescue Lana. Yeah. Oh, I love the... <laughs> that. That might be my personal favorite. Actually, no. <laughs> I like the one that involves him, his crew, and Jim Z in a prison cell. And I'm not going to say what happens. But right. you will laugh your ass off at that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, we've talked so much about Captain Dice. All the main cast of Conan are likable. Even the ones that are at least not meant to be likable, like uh, the asshole on uh, the asshole that works uh, on the salvage ship duty, or uh, later on Orlo, the uh, resident, the village jerk at High Harbor. <laughs> they have their own little endearing qualities, but it's a complete cast. Conan, our brave hero, Lana, a great heroine in her own right, Jimsy, our comedy relief who ends up being so much more, the brutal villain Lepka and his noble henchwoman Monsley, and of course the almighty Captain Dice. <laughs> and I th another thing I have to say that makes Conan so great beyond its cast of characters, it's world building. Every episode of Conan does not waste. Every episode builds upon the last one. Continue. It's a, it's a more serialized show than some other fair at around the time. And even in the episodes where nothing really significant happens to advance the story, we at least learn something about the world or the people living within the world or another part of the world is revealed to us. One element of anime that I don't think it's talked enough that I think can make or break a show to me is world building. And Conan does that in droves. Yes, agreed, full f agreed fully. It feels like the world of Conan is both very small and very big at the same time. We see a lot of the world of Conan, given that this is our planet, but it feels like there is so much that we don't see. We only really go to three places. Remnant Island, right. Industria, and High Harbor. But there is so much to these locations that just the richness and the realization of the world. And even when he's directing movies as opposed to TV shows, Miyazaki is able to do so much with world building and building those characters within the world. Very much so. Well, that's one thing that it seems in, in to my experience and what my reading of his career, so many people comment on in all his films. I mean, the, the creation of those worlds and... and and how well the momentum of the story goes within those worlds is something that uh, seems such a such a factor in his stuff. When it's funny, it's laugh out loud funny, and when it's serious, you dread what's going to happen to our heroes. I have said this in private about a certain other show that um I have on the docket. It's not whether our heroes win or lose. It's what they have to go through to achieve that victory. And specifically toward the end of the High Harbor arc, you really do fear for the people when Industria invades. And I think the tension is ramped up at the highest in the final battle on board the Gigant, which, in my eyes, is one of the greatest final battles ever because of just how creative it is in how they use what is effectively a giant stealth bomber to their advantage. Oh, definitely. It's, it's just... Uh magnificently uh well done uh the the scene work is just tremendous in in those uh, in those final couple episodes and if there's one thing that i really appreciate about conan is that it's something i mentioned at the beginning 
When Miyazaki took the assignment, he said that he wanted to change some things about the book. And the thing that he wanted to change the most was its tone. I have never read The Incredible Tide by Alexander Key, but from write-ups I have seen and from what uh, Dave Merrill at Let's Anime has said, the original novel is very dark and pessimistic. And, you know, this is sort of a fault of a lot of so-called post-apocalyptic stories. The good ones are able to at least give you a sense of optimism. The ones that are not so good tend to be very dour and sort of hopeless. Miyazaki wanted to get rid of that when adapting it into it. And Conan, through its light and darkness, remains ever optimistic about the future of humanity. Even after the world as we know it ends, there are going to be people that are willing to rebuild it. I kind of mentioned a Bible story, but it's sort of what the prophet Isaiah says of building up the remnant. Hell, it's kind of funny that Conan lives on Remnant Island because it is, in fact, a remnant of a lost civilization. But by the end of it, Miyazaki has made his statement. Even after our world has ended, we can rebuild it. We can find ways to take a dark and hopeless situation and bring optimism and light to the world. And you can see that also with Nausicaa, which is also a post-apocalyptic show. Future Boy Conan is a show that is perpetually optimistic about the situation and humanity. And I think that undying optimism is what endears it to me. At a time when we all feel sad and depressed and uncertain about where the world is headed, we can at least know that there will be those of us who are willing to put aside our differences, come together, and make the world, past, present, and future, a better place. Well, I think well that's said. it. Very well said, Nate. Yeah, I, I, and what a, that's a, I don't know if we have more to talk about, but what a heck of a note to end on. Yeah, um, and I'm glad we mentioned the book. Too, I, I hadn't read it. I was aware of it, you know, when we were working on a show, but, and I was curious, I was going to ask you guys if you had read it or had an experience. And it's interesting to read or hear your, there were some of the reviews that you had noted, uh, Nate, and how a, a book gets adapted. And as a, somebody who's an author myself, actually, I have a book that's being adapted now for scripts for a, maybe an Amazon or Netflix series, which is a pretty cool thing to be a part of. But, um, it's, uh, that, that's a whole other world and how, you know, books can change from, you know, where they get to, get to screen. But, uh, even if it, it, it'd be interesting to, to read the book or, or hear from people who have read it, um, who are maybe listening to the podcast and maybe get their comments, but, um, and perhaps only some highlights of the story may have been taken that Miyazaki developed into his own world that way, which is, as, as it says in the credits, inspired by the key book. But, um, Dave Merrill, who is a big Future Boy Conan fanboy. He says he's read the original novel, and the original novel is fine, but Conan supersedes it. It doesn't surprise me. It's, you know, what Miyazaki does at his finest level is so immersive, and, and you know, something that, a story that can be told over uh, 25 episodes of, of something visualized like that can often supersede something that's only 25 chapters in a book, you know, like, uh, depending on what the story is or depending on how well it's written, um, you know, there sometimes, yeah, the, 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 while sometimes the book is always better than the movie, sometimes the movie's better than the book, folks. Um, you know, and that's, uh, that's, that's you know, we, that sh shouldn't be denied. Of course, we've talked about its animation, the voice acting, the characters, and what we love about it. There's very little fault we can find in it. But I would also be remiss if I didn't mention about how 
Future Boy Conan, to those in the industry and to those who watched it, is a hugely influential series. I already mentioned how you go and watch Future Boy Conan, and then you can see the language of what Miyazaki's crew did in things like Castle in the Sky, Nausicaa, Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro, and so on and so forth, or even some of the TV series that Takahata did afterward, like Anne of Green Gables, you'll see some of their flourishes in those series that they previously worked on in Conan. But of course, I measured a longevity of an anime as to whether or not it is still referenced, spoofed, or homaged in any given work. And if you watch as much anime as Tim and I do, you will see plenty of tributes, homages, parodies, and more in Future Boy Conan. Now, there are some who are going to say, oh, Future Boy Conan is where Detective Conan got its title. No, that is not the case. Detective Conan's name comes from the author of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You would think that that would be obvious, but we've uh, come across enough... Uh... <laughs> Uh, enough certain fans that uh, wouldn't that you would be surprised do do make that mistake. A show that I just reviewed, Daphne and the Brilliant Blue, which is uh, okay, his series, but um, the world of Daphne and the Brilliant Blue borrowed heavily from Future Boy Conan, in that it is a world where a cataclysmic event has caused the ocean levels to rise. I believe the show's in-universe explanation was similar to that of Conan, was that it was like the use of, of geomagnetic weapons caused the Earth's tides to rise, and the remnants of civilization are all on these isolated floating cities on the ocean. The opening scene is also reminiscent of Conan, where our main character Maya is scuba diving under the water, and there's no words spoken within the first four minutes of the show. But to go more significantly, One Piece owes a lot to Future Boy Conan with how its world works. I've seen it spoofed in things like My Hime, uh, Full Metal Panic, Steven Universe had a, has a Future Boy Conan reference in it. It actually plays in to a key scene in 2020's Keep Your Hands Off Azoken. The one that made my head pop. The foot race between Conan and Jimsy when they're racing cheek to cheek. That was homaged in Pokemon the first movie, in the short Pikachu's Vacation, where Pikachu and a Raichu have a foot race, and it's very much within the spirit of Future Boy Conan. You know, I, it's, it, I was thinking to myself, I know I saw that somewhere before, and you just, you just put it out there for me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Perhaps, though, the thing that Conan influenced that would most be recognized isn't necessarily other anime, but a video game. The general aesthetic, the world, and even artwork of Future Boy Conan was a major influence on The Legend of Zelda, The Wind Waker. I can buy that 100%. The artwork of Link sailing, sailing with the King of Red Lions, where he's holding on to the sail, that is pretty much meant to homage Conan on, I don't know what the name of that sailboat is. It's something similar to a pontoon boat. I'm sure somebody will correct me on that. But even going beyond how it influenced other anime and video games, to name a few people 
who were influenced by it, though didn't work on Conan, Hideaki Anno owes a lot to Future Boy Conan. I couldn't find any interviews or articles where he cites Conan, but it was thanks to Miyazaki gaining notoriety as a director that Hideaki Anno, a young anime fan with stars in his eyes, volunteered to work as an animator on Miyazaki's big theatrical project, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. Eventually, Anno would use this experience to work on things like Macross, Megazone 2-3, and would eventually co-found Studio Gainax, where he made Gunbuster and took the remnants of what would have been a sequel to Conan and turned it into Nadia, the secret of blue water. Which by itself is another series that probably uh, uh, would probably be uh, good for a review on this uh, on uh, on this show at some point. It's possible, and I'm honestly ashamed that Ocean didn't get the chance to dub it and they went with the old ADV dub because we could have had Aaron Chapman as both Captain Dice and Captain Nemo. <laughs> that would have been fun. Mamoru Oshii, who infamously hates Miyazaki, even admits that he learned to storyboard from watching Future Boy Conan. My favorite anime director of all time, Satoshi Kon, even though he didn't work on Conan or even with Miyazaki or Studio Ghibli, he said that one of his favorite anime growing up was Future Boy Conan. But even going beyond anime, the director of the Oscar-winning film Parasite, Bong Joon-ho, has said that his favorite cartoon growing up was Future Boy Conan. Wow. Just, a, just an amazing amount of influence for this series. I saw an article that said that its ratings were disappointing in Japan, although it could be a case where it got popular in syndication like the first run of Lupin the Third or Gundam. But around the world, it was a smash hit and is still universally beloved. And for the first time, it's available in America. It isn't streaming anywhere on the usual sites like Crunchyroll, Hulu, but it is available on Blu-ray and to digital download, although you will need to pay money for it. And as we speak, it is currently on sale for $30 on Right Stuff. That's like a dollar an episode. Well worth the money if you want to get it uh, along with anything else this holiday season. Absolutely. Cool. And you know, you should just watch it. Not just because it is historically significant. Not just because it was popular for its time. Not just because this was the first solo directorial output for Hayao Miyazaki. But because it is a great series in and of itself. Without question. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Now, uh, Aaron, you did mention that you wanted a sequel or spin-off of Conan about Captain Dice. <laughs> and there were I would love it. There were attempts at a sequel. Like, Miyazaki had plans for Future Boy Conan 2, but never came to fruition. Although, some of those ideas did surface. I already talked about how you can draw so many parallels to... Conan and Castle in the Sky, but oh, Conan did get a sequel in 1999 called Paiga Adventure. It was released by Nippon Animation, but didn't have any of the major names attached to it. There were a few people, 
But, you know, Miyazaki and company were off at Studio Ghibli making boatloads of money, or, you know, whatever money you could make in the anime industry. The sequel has nothing to do with future boy Conan. It's similar to Conan, but there was so little connection between the two series that after 15 episodes, Nippon Animation dropped the Future Boy Conan 2 subtitle from the series. Whereas Conan is considered an all-time classic, and rightfully so, Taiga Adventure has fallen by the wayside and is, given the few reviews that I've read, justly forgotten. That's basically I what, I, what I heard when I recall hearing about that, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of that one myself. I only knew about it thanks to listening to the Anime Nostalgia podcast about it. Yeah, I all I'd seen, I never seen any clips or heard anything about it. Just heard the very much the same thing that it was a kind of a name only and and didn't take off and and yeah, just best forgotten as but it's a footnote and I guess in the the trivia of the show to a greater extent. On that note though, when we talk about how we finally got such an influential series here in America, I have a bit of a rambling to go on because Tim and I are members of what we call the Toonami generation of anime fans. We came around into fandom around the early aughts when we were watching Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z on Toonami, although I was more Sailor Moon than Dragon Ball Z because I abhorred violence. As you can tell, I'm kind of numb to it nowadays, but... I truly entered the fandom in 2006 when I started watching Inuyasha, another ocean dub, and I started attending conventions. And this is the height at what I call the bubble period for anime, where companies were licensing anything and everything and releasing it in the United States in the hopes that something, anything that wasn't airing on Cartoon Network or nationally syndicated television would stick with American audiences. The result of this was the shutdown and bankruptcy of several major American anime companies, leaving only Funimation, uh, Media Blasters, which, you know, they're still around somehow. Quote-unquote. <laughs> and, and a rather dormant animego who, as Robert Woodhead will tell you, still not bankrupt despite our own best efforts. <laughs> But the interest for anime such as Conan during this time in the bubble period was at an all-time low, mostly due to a mix of the release format of single discs and just a lack of interest for anything that wasn't airing on Toonami or Adult Swim at the time. There's no chance that this uh, this would have been feasible as a single disc release. I would even argue that once we started getting sets that it wouldn't be feasible either, given just how little interest there was in vintage anime, but... Not true enough with that as well. <laughs> but after the bubble period, uncertain is where the anime industry was heading, especially with the rise of sites like Crunchyroll and anime streaming on Hulu and Netflix and whatnot. If you had told me that there would be companies devoted wholesale to releasing vintage anime, I would not believe you. If you had told me that all of Gundam would be available commercially on Blu-ray in America, I would not have believed you. If you had told me that Studio Nue, Tatsunoko, Big West, and Harmony Gold 
would sort out all the legal snafu and would start making Macross available worldwide outside of Japan, I wouldn't have believed you. If you had told me that we would be getting English dubs for shows from the 60s, 70s, and 80s done by a modern cast, I wouldn't have believed you. If you had told me that there would be an entire streaming service streaming vintage anime for free online, I would not have believed you. And if you had told me that Miyazaki's classic series, Future Boy Conan, would be available in English with a dub, I would not have believed you. And when I finished Future Boy Conan for the first time, I didn't just think that it was one of the greatest series ever made. I thought to myself, wow, we have come a long way from being a vintage anime fan in America. Because if you were interested in anything made before 1995 that didn't air on Adult Swim, you were like the most hardcore of hardcore fans. Like, you had whole hard drives full of torrented stuff that was fan-subbed by people. But nowadays, a good chunk of the seminal works from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s are now available commercially in America. And while the future of physical media is still uncertain, the fact that you can watch all of this stuff online, some cases even for free, legally really just makes me appreciate how good we have it nowadays. Now, there are certain people on Anna Twitter and AnnaTube who talk about how we're living in a golden age of anime because we're getting so much stuff that's hyped up or long-awaited adaptations of popular manga like Spy Family, Chainsaw Man, Call of the Night, My Dress Up Darling, Blue Lock, Eminence in the Shadow, Mashal, which is coming out next year, Undead Unluck, also coming out next year, Gundam the Witch from Mercury, and dozens of other titles I could name, or more seasons of popular stuff like My Hero Academia, Demon Slayer, Jujutsu Kaisen, Attack on Titan, Overlord, which, you know, I'm not a fan of that show, but it has its fans. Yeah, we're getting a lot of quality content every season, but to me, I say we're living in a golden age of anime in America because we're getting stuff from the actual golden age stateside for the first time. From that period between 1972 to somewhere around, uh, I would say between 1995 and 1999. It's absolutely a period where it's, it's a best of both worlds situation. I mean, sure, not everything is there. But so much is there that there's really almost nothing to, to really complain about. And hey, I encourage all of you to go out and buy Future Boy Conan, either digitally or physically, in the hopes that maybe, just maybe, we can get stuff from the world's masterpiece theater release stateside. Stuff like Heidi of the Alps, Anne of Green Gables, Little Women, hell... It's not part of the Masterpiece Theater series, but can you imagine getting a Blu-ray release of the Moomin anime? Certainly possible nowadays. To me, anything is possible for the U.S. anime industry. And while we are entering a period of uncertainty with Sony owning a good chunk of the U.S. industry, which... Uh, I'm at least thankful that we've come this far for availability 
for anime in America from a classic period when talent and creativity was at its highest and some of the most influential names were cutting their teeth and inspiring others that would come after them. Absolutely true. You summed it up so well. It's um, it's an interesting time to to be a part of it all and uh, and being able to as a viewer. It's been uh, it's been fascinating to hear your guys' insights and some of the history that I didn't know and and the evolution of the of of the business. Uh, not only as some of the so many of the creators and and the titles you've talked about, but just simply as a viewer enjoying it all. So it's uh, I, I've I've enjoyed our conversation immensely here and and. Uh, I hope listeners would too. I don't know many, I don't know a lot of necessarily voice actors who go out and do things like this with a project. And I wish perhaps more of us would take the opportunity to do it, or I've been so thankful to uh, to be invited into to ch- chat with you guys about it because listening to some of your thoughts as well as the conversations we've had, you know, will probably weigh in my mind the next time I'm in the voice box to do uh, some studio work and think about uh uh, to think about these things or process uh, some of it all. So it's, it's, uh, it's, been re- it's been a great time. And I want to thank you guys so much for having me aboard. Now, before we close out the show, I want to say something. My original co-host for this, Dan the Man, had to pull out for personal reasons. He wanted to talk about Future Boy Conan with me, but he was unable to do it because he had other priorities in his life. And that matter was that a few weeks ago, his wife gave birth to their second child, a beautiful baby girl by the name of Lily. We here at the Otaku Nate Show want to wish Dan, his wife, and his children a happy, healthy, and prosperous life. May God watch over them and bless them with his grace. Yeah, for sure. Top of the season, yeah, that's great. So on that note, on that note, we've rambled for way too long. We're <laughs> reaching almost three hours worth of recording. This might be longer than my Giver double feature. But <laughs> might be split up into a couple episodes if you have to do it that way. If you enjoy the show, please give us a like, subscribe, leave us a review on Spotify, SoundCloud. Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, any place where you get your podcasts from. You can follow us on social media at Otaku Nate Show on Twitter, and I'm at the Otaku Nate Show on Facebook. And if you want to follow me on my escapades, mostly relating to me attending sports games and what have you, you can follow me at NateTendoWee on Instagram. Aaron Plug your stuff. Where can we find you on social media, and what are you currently up to? Well, I'm on. You'll find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You can track me down. I'm easily enough found um, as uh, the Aaron Chapman or that Aaron Chapman or uh, Aaron Chapman in Vancouver. That, those searches will probably reveal who I am. Um, I don't have anything immediately coming up voice uh, over wise or voice actor wise, but hopefully uh, the new year will be good. Um, I actually, well, I just did a. It's a Christmas uh, thing, um, the Gnome of Newberry and the Cucumber Cat, a Christmas story that, that was produced locally here, and I play the Cucumber Cat. Uh, so if you want to hear a quick little uh, Christmas story, it's only about five or six minutes long. You can find that anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm working on a couple of different books. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I, I'm i a historian. I do some history, um, British Columbia history, Vancouver history, where I'm from uh, <coughs> here in Canada. And uh, I'm working on a little bit of um, city history, 
projects, but the next book I'm working on is a um, is actually a book project uh, in the UK about a band called The Men They Couldn't Hang that I'm working on, and another book uh, about a band from here called Doug and the Slugs. Uh, so those are two music books, and a, a previous book of mine called The Last Gang in Town uh, has been recently been optioned, and they're trying to pitch it to Netflix or Amazon. We'll see what happens. Maybe I'll feel like Alexander Key in the and the and his book that became Future Boy Conan, or maybe I'll be happy with you know the results. You never know. That's a whole other thing. But I'm uh, we're starting to work on script ideas, and and so that'll be a whole new challenge in the new year. But I'm looking forward to do uh, lots more voice actor stuff uh, and and uh, and audition for things. And and I I think you know for my part working on Future Boy Conan while I. Been on some other shows. It's, it's it's definitely a feather in my cap with this new English language dub, and, and a lot more people have sort of noticed what I've been up to, and it's it's been a nothing but fun and nothing but a great experience. As just as it has been talking to you guys today. I do hope that like some of the Texas people, the California people, the New York people reach out to you and uh, at least praise you for your performance. That's all we can hope for, and I hope that Ocean gets to dub some more stuff in the future because. They were big into anime during the 90s and the early 2000s, but after the bubble period, they've kind of fallen off the radar. And it's a shame, because some of their later dubs are really good. People yeah. praise the Death Note dub. People have nostalgia for those Gundam dubs. As I said, I will always say Black Lagoon is the greatest anime dub of all time. Everything about that dub is just perfect. They've been great to work with on my end, and I, I got to know some of the faces over the years in terms of some of the directors and, and projects there, and it's a... Uh... For me, it's been a great studio, nothing but a, a, a blessing to work out with. Well, I originally, in 2012, I remember taking some, maybe it's actually earlier than that, probably, tw probably 2009. I was doing some voiceover workshops, and, and Randy Reidegger from Ocean approached me at the end and said, you're ready to start now casting stuff next week. And I said, well, I don't have an agent. He says, you don't need an agent right now. We're just talking to you, so we'll invite you in. And, of course, I went in with great confidence, and and the first six things I ever tried up for, I never got. I struck out every time. Uh, even for roles I thought I was born to play, like an Irish pirate on something, I thought for sure I would have I would have got that one. But it was a learn. It's been a learning process, and and I'm still learning things. And even you know, I've really enjoyed this uh, this conversation with you guys because it's uh, it, it's it's always you, you never mastered these things. You're, you know, you, you can you can learn the basics and learn how to approach things. But each new show, I, I I'm I've, I've always walked away with something that I've learned or felt that my performances have gotten better. And I and I I can think of some earlier stuff that I've done and some you know, some small roles and things like that. And, and I, I was, I, I have to say that I was fairly proud of my own work on, um, future boy Conan in terms of the dub. And I felt confident that it's, it's one thing being in the studio and doing all those lines and, and then you walk away and you come back and you do more. And within the process of doing it, when you're caught up in the middle of doing, it, you're never sure how it's all going to sit. So to sit and watch the whole series, um, and take it all in at once, and you can. I certainly remember times where I said those lines in the studio and whatnot. I feel I feel pretty good about it all, and and people have been very, very kind to me, and reached out to me online and whatnot. And if and I encourage people if you're listening to this podcast and you're checking out the show, feel free to drop me a line. Let me know what you think. I'm always curious to hear from you. even stuff stuff you didn't like, um, because it, I'm always interested to hear you know people's opinions uh, on that stuff. So. So this has been a real treat for me to talk to you guys, and I hope we get to do it again, maybe, for another project uh, down the line, even, if, if something comes up. Uh, it's been great fun. Hey, you know, if you're always looking for an anime to watch, you can always DM me. I'm always happy to give people recommendations. And something I forgot to mention, Conan is one of few anime I would recommend to people that aren't already fans of anime. And hey, 
if you have kids and you want to show them something other than the likes of Dragon Ball, My Hero Academia, or One Piece, Future Boy Conan is perfect if you have kids. The only real objectionable content is the aforementioned bit with the Smokies. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I agree 100%. Like, it, it, I was just feeling like, yeah, this is absolutely something that I feel like anyone could just sit down and watch and they would get it. And I think, again, that speaks to uh, Miyazaki making things as he has over his entire career that are just so incredibly accessible. Yeah, 100%. Indeed. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we go from something that is universally beloved and influential to a show whose reputation is a little more on the notorious side. There are people who love this show and say that it's one of their all-time favorite things. To others, it is the biggest piece of crap they have ever seen. It was one of the biggest anime of the 2010s, and it was one of the most visually stunning, too. And to others, it was also one of the worst of the decade. What do I think of it personally? Well, let's just say that if you want Red Ass Otaku Nate, you're gonna get Red Ass Otaku Nate. Because next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we are going to look at the bloated 2012 behemoth known as Guilty Crown. You've been waiting for this one. <laughs> oh, yeah. But on that same note, if you're just going to expect a group of guys bashing on it for an hour and change, don't worry. I'm going to make this more of a debate over its merits. I'm not just going to hate on it for the sake of hating on it. I'm not Ben Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> so until then, this is Otaku Nate. This is Tim the Otaku Jock. And this is Aaron Chapman, uh, who voiced the role of Captain Dice, wishing everybody top of the season, and I'll say the last line of the show, uh, just for everybody's behalf here. Everybody disembark. Prepare to drop anchor on the new continent. And this is Aaron Chapman, uh, who was so much fun with you guys, talking about voicing Captain Dice on Future Boy Conan. What a treat to be on the show. Thanks for having me. And we're signing off and saying, Aaron, take us out. Everybody disembark. Prepare to drop anchor on the new continent.